know how to boil your meat? Uh, not a euphemism. <laughs> that would be disturbing. And the music from Benny Hill starts playing. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that thinks it's the big cheese, no mistake. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. Tell the maids they can send their valentines. They might not get a response. No, but they can send them. Yeah, well, you're not rude. I won't throw it out right in front of them. Aw, that's sweet of you. That's as far as I'm willing to go for anyone, pretty much. All right, maids, the ball's in your court. (laughs) Welcome back, everybody, for our recap of Downton Abbey Series 3, Episode 4. Uh, we have no new countries this week. That's right. So I think, I think that might be it. I, I think us. it may be. We've reached all of the English speaking nations <laughs> or nations that have English speaking people living in them that care about us. That is true. So thanks everybody. Yeah. It's been a wild ride. <laughs> it has been. You can contact us, uh, via email, aka telegram. Our email address is upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. You can also send us a carrier pigeon, a.k.a. tweet. <laughs> Our handle is at 5 Maggie Smiths. That's the number 5. And you can also find us on Facebook. Just search up yours downstairs. Okay. And uh, with that, let's check out this week's telegrams from our cousins. Our first telegram comes from Cousin Matilda, who writes, Dear Cousins Kelly and Tom, I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while, and I've even conversed with Cousin Kelly via carrier pigeon a few times, but I've never actually taken the time to send a telegram before. This has been extremely remiss on my part, because I really enjoy your podcast, and really should have taken the time to say so before now. No matter how much I enjoy Downton Abbey on its own soapy glory, your podcast makes it ten times more enjoyable. I was glad to hear in your last podcast that you feel the second episode of Series 3 felt more like Downton, and that it restored your faith in the show. I've already watched Series 3. I live in Costa Rica anyway, so I might as well just download as soon as it's available. And I definitely felt that the first episode was extremely silly, and in particular, that the conflict between Mary and Matthew felt extremely. Not sure what she meant to say there, but whatever it was, we agree. It was extreme. Yes. Uh, Without getting into spoilers, I will say that Series 3 kept improving as it went along, and that there were several story arcs that I really appreciated and was extremely invested in, the first of these being the one involving Mrs. Hughes and whether she has cancer. I really enjoyed seeing the friendship between Mrs. Patmore and Mrs. Hughes, and Phyllis Logan really gets to shine. I also really wanted to thank you for your Mary Poppins podcast last month. I was abroad over the holidays, so I only got to listen to it this week. I hadn't watched Mary Poppins in about 20 years, and like you guys mentioned in your podcast, it holds up extremely well. Rewatching Mary Poppins was probably the most fun I've had watching a movie in quite a while. It also made me realize how invested I was in the Mary-Bert relationship as a little girl. If there had been internet back then, I'd probably have taken to it to write really terrible fanfic about them. I'm not proud of this, but I may or may not have actually looked for Burt Mary fanfic in the last couple of days. There's not a lot of it. Anyway, your podcast and the movie got me so fired up that I'm actually reading the first book right now. I'd read it in fifth grade, but at the time, my family had just moved to the U.S. and my English wasn't all that great. So there's a lot of it that I don't remember very well. So again, thank you. Looking forward to your next podcast, Cousin Matilda. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, let us know how that book turns out. (laughs) Yeah. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Christopher. Shrimpy? Is that you, Shrimpy? Sorry, I just wanted to do that. 
Greetings, cousins. I hope this telegram finds you well. I finished most of your podcast for episode three, the one where Edith gets screwed, and not in a good way, (laughs) and thought I would provide you the information on who Lucille the dressmaker was. Lucille was the name of the fashion line started by Lady Lucille Duff Gordon in the early 20th century. Sound familiar? It should, as she and her husband Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon were also on the Titanic. They are introduced by Rose to Jack in the dining room in James Cameron's Titanic as the one who designed naughty lingerie. Lady and Sir Duff Gordon both survived, but their lifeboat only carried 12 people away, and Sir Cosmo was reported to have offered the crewmen money to replace their lost tools to not row back for survivors in fear of swamping their boat. Lady Gordon was also famously quoted as saying to her secretary when the ship sank, There goes your beautiful nightdress, gone. Because losing her dress was the most horrific part of the sinking of the Titanic, you see. Lady Lucille had huge business in the teens and 20s, but like everyone else, the line went bankrupt during the Depression. So, theory. In future, the Grantham should ask any potential suitors or business partners if they have any connection with the Titanic. If so, they must be avoided at all costs. Let's do the math. James and Patrick, dead on Titanic, throws a state into turmoil. Fake Patrick, comes back using Titanic BS story to wreak havoc in the family. Charles Hayes, president of the Grand Trunk Railroad that Lord Grantham pissed all the family's money away into. Lady Lady Lucille Duff Gordon designed the fabulous yet obviously cursed wedding dress that Edith was jilted while wearing. Wishing you happy sailing on any other vessel not connected to Titanic, Cousin Christopher. Thank you very much, Cousin Christopher. And thank you. We did actually get quite a few telegrams uh, letting us know about uh, Lucille Duff Gordon, which it's really embarrassing that it didn't even occur to us (laughs) to, like, look it up. Right. We are such, like, Wikipedia junkies with this show. Well, and also, I mean, the thing about the show is most of the names they mention are real names and can be looked up. True. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, big thanks also to cousins Beckett, Amy, and Lauren, who also sent us some telegrams letting us know about that. Yes. Uh, we also received several photos of, I think we have one of a Lucille dress and also one of a cousin whose name escapes me right now. Don't worry, I'll credit you on Facebook. <laughs> uh, sent in a photo of her grandmother's wedding dress in oh. the 1920s with her grandmother in it. Wow. Yeah, so we'll definitely post those so you can check out Lucille's other work and just sort of what wedding fashion was looking like around the time period of the show. Yeah. I also wonder when they were uh, meeting with Lady Lucille Duff Gordon to discuss the wedding dress. Yeah. Did this come up at all? You, well... Like, so, you uh, didn't go back and rescue anybody in the ship where my relatives died. Yeah, Uh, that's true. So, uh, make it a nice dress, huh? I don't know, though, because, I mean, it was a fashion house, so it's possible that they were dealing well, with some underling and not, yeah, I mean, you know, Lady Duff true. Gordon herself. I mean, Although, they'd be a pretty high-profile client. They would be. I mean, they can, as we'll find out, can get a meeting with the home secretary anytime they That's want. That's true. Um, well? Yeah, yeah. All right, then. But yes, thank you for uh, backing us up. We can always count on our cousins. Yes. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Elizabeth, who writes, Hello, Kelly and Tom. Just listening to the newest podcast, fantastic as usual. Just wanted to let you know that Kilmenham Jail in Dublin is designed on the Panopticon model, at least the newer wing, which I believe was added circa 1864-1865. If you're ever in Ireland, I would thoroughly recommend checking it out. It also gives a bit more insight into Branson's mindset. Back to listening, Cousin Elizabeth. Branson wishes he had a panopticon. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Yes. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Matt, who writes, "'Tis I, Matt, the very first cousin of the week, a title I still take with pride. How very wonderful it is to hear you both covering and booming Downton Abbey again. <laughs> Here are a few thoughts to share. 
Regarding the liberal appreciation for Downton, I think there is an added layer beyond simply enjoying it as fiction. For we plebeians, there's a sick sort of fun in watching the troubles of the rich. The show doesn't exploit that. There aren't obvious mo-money-mo-problems moments in the show, but there is the vague sort of in-joke that we viewers don't mismanage the rents of tenant farmers, nor worry about who is third in line for the uber-rich will because... We're so darned common. When my wife and I discuss holding off on attending to the downstairs, it's because two gallons of paint cost $60, not because the live-in help has lost my favorite bejeweled ring. I'm getting ready to see PBS done in like Mrs. Bates. I'm a very <laughs> visual person, and the ending of the fourth episode of the third season was marred by PBS and their twitchy cutting. You'll recall that the episode ends with Bates in prison on screen, left, emotionally reunited with Anna by letter. The scene then dev- dissolves with Anna at home on screen right, feeling exactly the same way. The scene was clearly carefully shot. They appear the same size and appear delicately almost in the same shot. It's cinematic art and presentation at the height, and a visual quote of 1958's Indiscreet, in which Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn talk on the phone in bed, separated by a split screen. At the time, even married couples couldn't be shown in bed together, so being on the phone is an artful way around censors. All of that emotion, overcoming a distance, yearning for one's spouse, and sweet, pure love, that's how the episode ended. And what does PBS do? Quickly cuts to the credits as Anna fades in because they are heartless fucks who think they have caused Downton to be a hit, whereas we, the audience, discovered it. Damn you, PBS. I'm sending Branson after you. In closing, a thousand appreciations for all your hard work on the podcast. Having been involved with the strange hobby of making podcasts for a while, I remain dazzled by your unique and wonderful production. Matthew may find Downton Abbey quite mismanaged, but you both manage the podcast splendidly. Chip, chip, cheerio. First cousin, Matt. Wow, that was such a long time ago that he was first cousin Matt. It was. We've come such a long way, baby. We really have. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but thank you. Um, you know, uh, again, we'll be getting to this scene at the end of the episode, but uh, that's excellent observation. We're glad you pointed it out. We were too busy being upset by other things to have really... Well, I mean, we didn't... I, I realize as I'm saying this, we watched it on the the British version on our DVD. We did. So. We did not watch it on TV. Yeah. So, you know, sorry for being less than thorough. <laughs> yeah. Well, ever since we realized that Laura Linney wasn't going to come in. Right? What's like, the point, yo? Love. Webster's defines it as an attraction <laughs> between two people. <laughs> but what if one of them's in jail? Webster's doesn't say. Let's find out, shall we? <laughs> Oh, Laura. <laughs> that we'd watch. Come on our podcast, Laura Linney. <laughs> Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Sherry, who writes, I just found your podcast today. I think I'm your 501st like on Facebook. I had a different take on Matthew's reply to Lord Grantham's question about the honeymoon. My eyes have been opened. Matthew had just been with Mary every minute of every day for a month. Arg! In other words, the guild is off the lily. The rose has lost its blush. Cousin Sherry. I think that's a good point. One that I'm sure you vehemently disagree with. I do. Okay. But uh, a good observation nonetheless. <laughs> Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Melissa. Good morrow, cousins. I have a few theories to share. On the subject of the letter from Mr. Swire delivered to Matthew by his attorney, I believe the attorney insisted on hand delivery to debunk any worries of forgery. Of course, Eminem are not bright enough to make this connection. Also, if you have a moment, I encourage you to rewatch the 10-second wedding scene of Mary and Matthew for the exchange of glance between Mosley and O'Brien. I have a theory that he is really so desperate that he might be sweet on, yes, (gasps) O'Brien. Insert gasp here. 
Finally, I believe that Thomas attempted to utilize Molesley to dupe O'Brien because he knows that McGee would completely flip out. It's been no secret that McGee only has O'Brien as a friend. If she can't trust the bond the two of them share, then whom can she count on? Love your podcast. Hoping you guys can catch up due to the double first episode. It makes it tough to reach back a whole week, especially in the details. Totally cried when Sir Anthony said, I can't do this, cousin Melissa. P.S. Conspiracy theory. I think Carson might be sweet on Mrs. Hughes and has been forever. Well, I mean, that's not a conspiracy ther- per se, uh, but... Um, I think so, but I don't think Mrs. Hughes would ever even... It, like, she would be like, please. Well, and what I think they are, I think they're, you know, work wife and work husband. You know, that I... That I there, there is a, a deep and intimate connection between mm-hmm, them. For sure. But one that neither of them wishes were different. I, uh, I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Although I would say I could see Carson being a little sweet on her. But not vice versa. Well, because Mrs. Hughes is very professional. And yeah. Carson clearly has difficulty with his emotional boundaries. Yeah. But uh, I do like this mostly in O'Brien theory. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm definitely an Obosley. <laughs> Mo uh, Brian. Mo Brian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, as to catching up uh, because of the double first episode, uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, everybody. We're We're... If we can keep up with where we're at, yeah, we'll be satisfied. That will be a victory in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. If, you know, if we had seen this coming, maybe we could have done something about it, but we're yeah. here now. We're here now. This is, just watch it again. Yeah. Just watch it again. Why not? We watch it at least three times a week. <laughs> so. <laughs> and finally, uh, it's time to announce our cousin of the week. Uh, and this week it is actually cousin Angela, who is a uh, history teacher in a high school and is going to be actually playing some of our podcast for her class uh is when i was discussing the origins of world war one at the end of series one of downton abbey with our guest sam roth which was a lot of fun and uh yeah she apparently felt that i sound like i know what i'm talking about and uh so it's just very exciting for me i you know i always feel that more people should be listening to what i have to say (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and now some of them will be forced to do so. So I think that's great. That is great. Congratulations, Tom. And congratulations, Angela, on being Cousin of the Week. Yes. Enjoy. Mm-hmm. All right. Now it is time. Time to deal with the dumbest thing we've ever seen. <laughs> what am I talking about? Oh, I don't know. Just episode four of series three of Downton Abbey. Yeah. We're, uh, we are not amused. We are extremely <laughs> so not amused with this episode. Yeah. So. Get ready. If you really like this episode, we'll probably convince you otherwise by the end of this. <laughs> we, we will do our best. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. So let's dive in. Uh, we start off down in the servants hall and Carson is handing out mail to literally all of the servants except for Anna. Uh, and she asks if there's anything for him, and he says, no, still nothing. This has apparently been going on for a while. All the other servants are not married, and all of them are receiving mail. How do they all have friends, and Anna's only friend is Mr. Bates? Because she's in an abusive relationship. <laughs> That's probably it. He's like, I don't want any of these people writing to you anymore. I suspect some of them of being dishonorable. <laughs> she said, all right, Mr. Bates. <laughs> Uh, my favorite part of this scene, actually, is Thomas gets a letter, and he looks at it, and it has sort of, like, this saucy, like, glint in his eye, and then he, like, tucks it into his jacket. I'm like, ooh, <laughs> Thomas has a boyfriend. 
boyfriend. I know, right? I or, really want him to have a boyfriend. Or at least an erotic pen pal. I would love it if he had an erotic pen pal. <laughs> I'd love it if I had an erotic pen pal. <laughs> Maid, send those valentines. <laughs> at murder prison, there's also no mail for Bates. What happened? It's My theory at this point was that one of the letters got lost, and then they both think the other person's turn to write back, and so they just won't write again. <laughs> they don't want to be rude. Yeah. Up in Matthew and Mary's dressing room, uh, Matthew was talking about how he doesn't want to get into any detail about the running of the estate that he started to get into now that he's made his investment, uh, and he doesn't want to challenge Robert, uh, and Mary's unimpressed she's very unimpressed with this with him in this scene she seems to slowly be realizing that she married a big whiny baby so (laughs) i think i think the guild is off the other lily myself or rose or whatever i i think it's gone the other direction but here word of the wise lilies lose their guild roses lose their blush ah that's that's there should be some sort of mnemonic device for that maybe mcgee will uh embroider a pillow with that on it for you (laughs) that would be disturbing (laughs) i made it just for you i mean give it to you at lunch (laughs) i mean i figure it's because michelle dockery just always drops in an eye roll whenever it's not clear what her motivations are yeah well and i honestly that's what else are you gonna do Uh uh-huh anna is there helping mary dress and Matthew asks her about Bates, and uh, she apparently hasn't seen him in a long time, and he hasn't written in a long time, and there's that's that's that. Mm-hmm. She's a sad panda. <laughs> she is. Isabel comes into Mrs. Hughes' parlor in all of her finery. She's pushing in on her again. Apparently, it's after dinner that night, so yeah. we've taken a pretty big leap in the timeline for this show. <laughs> that's true. Uh, yeah, and she, she closes the door behind her, and I was like, I, I was imagining her saying, the fact is, Mrs. Hughes, I love you. I feel as though I've always loved you. <laughs> Sadly, that is not what happens. What happens is they have to talk about Ethel. Yeah. Again, she gave Isabel a letter to give to Mrs. Hughes. Isabel finally comes out and tells Mrs. Hughes that Ethel's been working as a prostitute. And it gives Mrs. Hughes the vapors. Yeah. She looks like her heart literally skipped a beat. (laughs) Well, I think she's just like, she said prostitute out loud. Now I have to clean this whole room. (laughs) I mean, come on. Really, people? It's the world's oldest profession. <laughs> You've heard this word before. I yeah. know we're in this time of like genteel living or whatever, but like, it's in the Bible, right? I, I believe it is. Also, you've either, if you know what the word means, you've clearly heard it before. So let's all grow up a little bit. But anyway, Mrs. Hughes, uh, thinks, you know, uh, Ethel wisely refused to see Isabel because why would you ever? <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, Mrs. Hughes said, you know, she's probably just too ashamed to face up to the life that she's living. And I'm like, maybe she just really hates Isabel. <laughs> yeah. Have you considered that? It seems quite plausible. I know, Mrs. Hughes, you have not experienced, you know, full frontal Isabel in the way <laughs> the rest of us have. Yeah. But oh my God. Although she did, I mean, back when Isabel was trying to give Mrs. Hughes directions over uh, McGee's. Oh, right. Yeah. That's yeah. true. I guess, and that's... Oh, I like Isabel when she's trying to do something that I feel is ultimately for the greater good. Yeah. But this prostitution project really feels like a vanity project for her to me. It, it does. I And I was going to say we'll see how it develops, but I think it's already served its only purpose in the plot, yeah. I fear. But we'll we'll see. Up in the dining room after dinner, Matthew and Lord Grantham are sitting there being served uh, cigars by Carson. 
And Carson asks if he's supposed to answer to both of them. Matthew says, of course not. He has just made an investment. Uh, and that's all that it means. Carson asks, does it mean that they can bring the staff back up to snuff? Uh, Lord Grantham says yes. Which, fun story, when he asks that question, Matthew opens his mouth to be like, fuck no. <laughs> right. And Lord Grantham is like, and I'm like, Matthew, you can't be mad. Right. Don't you get just, mad. It's been- you literally just, it's been a half a second <laughs> yeah. since you were like, I don't give the orders around here. It's all about that guy. Yeah. Carson lists all the new staff members they need, and Matthew says that he feels the world is a a different place since the war, which has not stopped him from enjoying his port and his cigars and his fancy clothes. Oh, and his butler. Yeah. But, uh, oh, oh, you're better than all this, Matthew. The people who have criticisms of the class system on this show seem to have a very difficult time articulating and or living those ideas. Yeah. Which, and I mean, there are definitely times in this episode where I, I do feel like it's definitely on the side of Baron Fellows saying, look at these idiot rich people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this scene is kind of one of them, just because, come on, yeah. they're in their formal attire, smoking cigars. Like, I, I think that was intentional. Well, I just, you know, I wish, though, that he had the balls to really let Matthew be like, oh, you know what? I'm the heir. We're changing all this stuff. Right. Like, I have that kind of power. Which, that... That may still be developing. It may That be. one I'm willing to let play out a little Look, bit. Look, he's not going to say it on screen. Well, nobody's going to say anything on screen. It's like freaking Kabuki. <laughs> it is. In any case, Carson says that he would prefer to begin resume working as a butler rather than a butler as well as footman. And Lord Grantham says that there won't be time to get things set for the dinner for the Archbishop of York, but that will be the last time he'll have to fudge it. Who is this actor playing the Archbishop of York, man? Because I feel like he must have blown somebody really important. <laughs> because it's like, what? Why are you having this guy over again? You already had him there for that wedding. I well, I think you know. Once you once you've worked with somebody, you're like, uh, we need a fancy guest. We already worked with this guy. We've got his True. number in our cell phone. We'll we'll just call him. Downstairs the following morning, Matthew asks why Edith doesn't have her breakfast in bed, and she says it's because she's not married, and even though the others are, and it wouldn't really make a difference, she prefers to be up and about in the morning, which I say, good on you, because breakfast in bed is actually pretty disgusting. (laughs) It's true. Well, also, Matthew says, I would think after, and Edith interrupts him and says, after all the others are married, it wouldn't matter. Because I don't think Matthew was about to say the others are married. Uh-huh. That's not the event he was referring to. I think he was saying that after what happened to you, you should you deserve to be <laughs> and, in seclusion, right? And Edith uh, just did yeah, not it's, allow that. It's not that. entirely clear how much time has passed since that. Actually, that's true. It is a bit vague. Uh, yeah. They don't believe in time in Downton Abbey. <laughs> Uh, Lord Grantham announces he's reading the paper. Apparently he's the only one who has any interest in or is allowed to read the paper. I think, I think once he's done with it, the others can pick it up off the floor and, uh, read the, the articles they're interested in. <laughs> yeah. But he announces that Tennessee, the state in America, <laughs> is about to ratify the 19th Amendment. To which I say, to Tennessee, you go, Glen Coco. <laughs> uh, Edith speaks very derisively about how the women of Britain aren't universally enfranchised. And that's because at this point, to vote, you have to be over 30 or be a house owner. Right. Uh, which we discussed on a previous Tom Repeats history, mm-hmm. that the universal enfranchisement of women won't actually occur for eight more years. Right. Uh, 
Anybody want to take bets on whether or not Mary finally gets knocked up by then? <laughs> so Matthew says that Edith should write to the Times about it. And Edith has come a long way from her first series self, who yeah. couldn't give two shits about <laughs> voting. Uh, and now she feels that it's very important. Yeah. So Matthew tells her to write to the Times, and she says she will. Now, Lord Grantham has apparently completely ignored this exchange <laughs> in light of what happens later in the episode. Uh, but he tells Edith that she should help McGee with the dinner for the toffee-nosed prince of the church right. who's coming, the aforementioned yeah, the, Archbishop of York. Nobody's as toffee-nosed as a prince of the church. Like, what about a dog that got into some toffee? <laughs> I would think he would be extremely toffee-nosed. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> you would think. And I like when like refers to him like Prince of the Church. I'm like, what is he a Batman villain? <laughs> I I like that plan. And he's like, ah, oh, Bishop, we meet again. And he's like, that's Archbishop to you, Batman. <laughs> and Care then, for some toffee? <laughs> he shoots him with a crucifix gun. <laughs> oh, I'd like it better if it was like a nail gun, you know, but like a like a crucifixion <laughs> nail gun. Yeah, it shoots out four at once. Yeah. And- oh, that would be amazing. That would be. Someone, make that happen. <laughs> Generally, I'm not a fan of guns. But a stigmata gun? Come on. <laughs> uh, so, Lord Grantham says that because the uh, Archbishop is so very toffee-nosed, he has to sit to the Dowager Countess, who's pretty toffee-nosed her own self. Right. She's She's got she's got her fair share of co- toffee. Yeah. yeah. She's like a Heath bar. <laughs> Downstairs, Anna sighs wistfully and then walks into the servants' hall. And Carson announces to her that once they hire a new housemaid, she will finally officially be promoted to lady's maid. She is polite about it, and Mrs. Hughes says that she thought she'd be more excited. After all, she'll still have to work all day, every day for the rest of her life, but she will wear nicer clothes while doing it. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty exciting, I would think. Anna says that she's got a lot on her mind. Uh, Carson announces that they will also be taking on a new footman. O'Brien immediately says that he'll be second footman, of course, and Carson says that he can make no guarantees. Thomas asks Carson to get a footman with something about him, because he would hate to think that the house wasn't being properly represented. Alfred asks, is that a dig at me? Uh, and like, oh, so you finally figured out how communication works, Alfred. Yeah. Passive-aggressive communication, primarily. Yeah. It's only been, what, six months? <laughs> At the table, Mrs. Hughes leans over and tells Carson about her letter from Ethel. And apparently Ethel wants to meet Mrs. Hughes, but she won't come to Downton. And, like, at this point I was like, shouldn't Carson be angry that she's been talking to Ethel since she brought that baby into the dot? Like, <laughs> do we not recall how upset he was? He was quite upset. He was extremely upset. And yeah. he, you know, at no point had any sympathy for Ethel and was very vocal about it. It's true. So he takes all this... Just, you know, laid back as you please. Yeah. Like, as opposed to saying, oh, I thought she'd be burning in hell by now. Yeah. Yeah. Or some such. It's also just funny that they're just at the table with everyone else and she just sort of leans over just like, you know, don't tell any of the other 20 people in this room what I'm about to say in a non-whisper. Yeah. Like, odd. The other thing I want to point out, I think it was from this scene, once again, Thomas a.k.a. Rob Collier James, mm-hmm. is the actor who portrays him, he is just the only person who I feel like is totally in touch with who his character has been from the beginning. Yeah. Again, I think part of that is because they've kind of, you know, 
in this thing with Carson, you know, this is a totally out of character reaction for him. Mm-hmm. You know, he should have been at least a little bit condescending about it. Right, right. And wasn't. Yeah. And then, you know, there's just something that's very solid about the characterization of Thomas that's been extremely consistent. Agreed. And I give a lot of credit on the acting to that because it's not like he hasn't done nonsensical things like everybody else. Uh-huh. But as somebody who I never really has thought of as, as standing out as an actor, I've never had a problem with him. But I, I really, this season, I've started to appreciate him Well, more. and I've appreciated him more retroactively, too. Right, right. Uh, anyway... Mrs. Hughes says she'll try and get Ethel to meet her at Isabel's house because apparently prostitutes were uncomfortable coming to grand mansions, but not to the house of someone who is, uh, you know, a buck-toothed interloper. <laughs> yes. Upstairs in an undecorated, unfurnished room, Matthew comes in to see Mary and says that Cora told him... Are they really on Christian name terms? I wonder that myself. Really? Yeah. Like, I'm, shouldn't he be calling her mama or I, something? I'm not on Christian name terms with your parents. That's true. Yeah. You're certainly not. You just don't have names. No, I don't call them anything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Mary says that she has stolen the nursery as a sitting room for them. And Matthew was like, is that all? Because Cora said that you'd been to the doctor earlier. Uh, but she said, no, just getting something for my hay fever. Is that what they're calling birth control these days? Apparently so. I mean, she's very, she says it very suspiciously mm-hmm. in the classic bad lying Downton Abbey way. True. Um, but it's, I'm not at all clear what is going on there. And Matthew says that, well, what will we use for a nursery should the need arise? And he sort of like comes up behind He's her. He's clearly trying to get his dick wet. <laughs> right. And Mary said that they can worry about that further down the line in a very huffy kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, can they? I mean, like, her eggs have fossilized at this point, right? <laughs> They're going to have to do, like, a Jurassic Park in order to have another heir for this stupid fucking house. Yeah. Just, I don't know what is going on in that scene between Matthew and Mary. Like, I He wants to bone and she's a bitch. Well, but what's her, what is her problem? Like, there's clearly something going on here and I just didn't get what it was at well, they probably explained it all in a scene that didn't make it into the show. <laughs> yeah, I guess. No, because that's exactly what it feels like. Yeah. This is an ex- extension of a previous argument. Well, hopefully argument. they'll start dealing with that. Because, I mean, you know, we had Edith making reference to Mary probably being pregnant. Right. We know they've been having a lot of sex. Right. We know she needs to get pregnant. That is, yeah. you know, important for that's her, her to do That's her only so. job. Yeah. And, you know, and we had talked about birth control. Right. A couple episodes ago. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it just wasn't that advanced, right? you know, and it wasn't that accepted yeah. for women. Like it's possible. It's possible. Well, and would she have been able to be on, have be using any kind of birth control without Matthew knowing? That's a really good point. Probably not. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a puzzler. It's troubling. Like, is she pregnant with somebody else's baby? <gasps> like, that that would that's a thing that's not a, that can't be the case but it would fit with that scene it would fit with that scene so i don't know <gasps> what if they're alien babies <laughs> like on american horror story all their problems will be solved that's true them alien babies were calm under pressure they were extremely <laughs> calm under pressure you don't know what we're talking about definitely watch series two of american horror story colon asylum yeah 
Uh, unless it might be too much for you. <laughs> yeah. uh, which it might be. Yeah. Like Downton Abbey is like, you know, a kitten who's had its teeth removed compared <laughs> to the yowling mountain lion that is American Horror Story. Yes. That was a terrible analogy. It was, I'm really. <laughs> really sorry that that even happened. <laughs> Moving on to the Dower House. Edith is there uh, giving the Dowager Countess a bottle of perfume that apparently cost a guinea, which is too much. She wants to know if the uh, shopkeeper extracted it from her with a mask and a gun. Which I thought was pretty funny. Eh. Pretty, well, I mean, not funny per se, but good standard old person. I understand, but I sold perfume to old people for a long time, <laughs> and there is nothing that old women will pay more for than freaking stinky-ass perfume. Uh, she didn't send it back. That's true. <laughs> uh, anyway, Edith says, you know, she's doing all right. The Dowager Countess says she worries about Edith. And I'm like, um, remember how it's your fault that she's not married? Yeah. The answer to that appears to be no. Yeah. And neither does Edith. Yeah. Edith doesn't appear to hold any grudge on that account. Nobody seems... Nobody seems to to have noticed that. They used that torchwood drug on them to erase (laughs) their memories. But not enough, because Edith uh, does still remember the pain of being jilted, which is horrible, times 10,000 million. Which is a lot. That's quite a lot. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so the Dowager Countess tells her she needs to find something to occupy her time. Edith is like, yeah, with what? I'm like, oh, maybe you could help run the estate. (laughs) Apparently. Uh, She says she could do gardening, and the Dowager Countess is like, you're not that desperate. (laughs) Um... And so then the Dowager Countess gives her what would be good advice if we just ignored the last episode. Right. Uh, and also things that happen later in this episode. <laughs> she tells her that you're a woman with a brain and reasonable ability. Stop whining and find something to do. Yes. So that's good advice for Edith. It is good advice. Yeah, again, out of, out of context, it's really a nice scene. We yeah. liked it a lot. In a downstairs hall, Anna is sighing as she's been doing all episode. Here's my thing. Anna is exhibiting classic, classic soap opera pregnancy behavior. Oh, yeah. Now, we all know there's just no way she could be pregnant. Right. Like, she just simply couldn't be pregnant. Right. But she is acting so pregnant, I want to scream. Yeah. Well, it's been somewhere between one and 300 months since Bates was put in prison. Mrs. Hughes sees her and tells her that she is going out and is saying things about Mrs. Padmore's under control or whatever, but then asks and stops and asks her what's wrong. Uh, and it confesses that she hasn't heard from Mr. Bates in weeks. She's worried that he's trying to set her free. Wouldn't they have already intuited this by the no letters thing? Well, uh, you know, here's, here's my question. I'm sorry I keep trying to apply reason and logic. My question that I have written down during the scene is, does Julian Fellows really think we care about the relationship? Cause I know we used to. We did. We did. But I just don't care. I, no man, he's in prison. He's you in prison. Probably, like forever, most yeah. likely. So, also, seems pretty guilty. Yeah. Seems pretty guilty yeah so maybe you should maybe you should just you know alfred wants to play a game with you yeah like as long as it's not war games i don't see a problem (laughs) yeah like maybe you should allow yourself to be set free i don't know but uh mrs hughes it's just hard for me to criticize anna because i love her so much oh yeah i know me too but uh mrs hughes like 
everyone else in the fictional world of Downton Abbey cares passionately about their relationship and assures Anna that it'll be okay, and that makes Anna feel better. So, there's that. Murder prison! (laughs) Blue filter! That's how you know you're a murder prison! (laughs) First rule of murder prison, don't show me scenes from murder prison. (laughs) Seriously, I hate these scenes. I know. As much as I don't care about the relationship between Anna and Bates... 10,000 million times more is how little I care about what goes on at murder prison. Yeah. Like, it doesn't affect anyone. It doesn't affect anyone. None of these people seem to have enough connections on the outside to come and, like, put a hit on the frickin' crawlies or anything. Well, and we don't spend any time with any of the other characters in the prison except for, you know, generic cellmate a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Craig. Yeah, Craig. And it's just, uh... Well, uh, we did discover the name of this other generic uh, prison guy who tipped Bates off about them planting contraband in his bed. His name is Dent. Right. As in Harvey, although this guy does not seem to have any sort of delightful personality quirks (laughs) or a split personality or even a coin that he flips. Yeah. So, boo. He's a little ugly, but not Harvey Dent ugly. Nah, nah. (laughs) Uh, and he's not Harvey Dent handsome either. Right, exactly. It's like, pick a side. (laughs) So Dent tells Bates that the guards know that he tricked them by, you know, stashing the contraband. Right. Uh, to be fair, I think the guards tricked themselves. <laughs> yeah. By not searching his person. Yeah, that's really their own fault. But uh, apparently, because of that, the guards have stopped his visits and his letters because he's been reported to the governor for violence. Even though he hasn't committed any violence. Right. Uh, but then Bates is very happy because now he knows that Anna doesn't hate him, which is more as the pity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then at this point, of course, the guard comes in and says, stop talking, <laughs> which is what I want to say every time we wind up in murder prison. Yeah. Boy, lightly enforced rule, that one. <laughs> Downstairs at Downton, uh, there's a bunch of spoons lined up and Carson is quizzing Alfred on them. He names all except the last one, which Carson says is the bouillon spoon. And he thought that soup spoons were the same as tablespoons, but ah, not bouillon, which is served out of a smaller bowl. So file that away. Tip for everybody. See, there. this is how people learn how to use cutlery before that Kathy Bates scene in Titanic. <laughs> right. That revolutionized the field. Yeah. This is primitive. We've never learned the inside or the outside in rule before. <laughs> Thomas stops in the doorway and uh, says to Carson that he is jealous that Carson is giving Alfred all this help. And Carson says, I don't see why Alfred asked for help and you never did. Boom. And, yeah. Thomas is like. You win that round. No. He, he's like that. He has no response to I that. I really like a lot of what is going on with Thomas in this episode, despite the fact that he has all like next to nothing to do. Mm-hmm. He just, yeah, he's, to me, there's this clear through line. There's this whole story about Thomas in this episode that I have made up in my head. <laughs> Uh, where, you know, he's gotten this letter from, you know, a gentleman friend of his, and he's, you know, making fun of Alfred, but then he's like, oh, maybe I have been a bit of a twat. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I could have been nicer at times. Yeah. Just a lot of, just a lot of good facial expressions. No, and just very subtle and very, ah, man, Rob Collier James, people. Yeah. Catch the fever. <laughs> Ethel has arrived at, uh... Isabel's house. That's where Mrs. Hughes was going off to. So she asks if Mrs. Hughes could write to the Bryants because she wants to give them Charlie. Uh, turns out a mother's love isn't worth as much on the open market as she had previously thought. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a bummer. Yeah. Far less than a prostitute's vagina, for example. Exactly. 
Oh, I'm sad now. <laughs> it's, it's you're supposed to be. Okay, good. We good. we rarely were, but we were supposed to be sad all through this. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, Isabel then stupidly acts like it is not the right choice for her <laughs> to give her son to these rich people that want to raise him. Yeah. Isabel, I think, just wants a single mother to include on her fundraising circulars <laughs> that she's passing around in Manchester from the Whore Institute. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, as as ugh, off-putting as this whole Whore Institute thing kind of is, I mean, Isabel is, you know, her deal is with Ethel is she's like, I want to actually help somebody and I don't seem to be doing so. And mm-hmm. you, uh, you would be a great person for me to actually help yeah. and sleep at night. Yeah, but, you know. But that's not what Ethel's about, right? Because you know, that's the thing. While People... she she's she's not looking for a rich old lady like fix her problems. No, that's she not... wants to secure a future for her son. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Isabel tries to convince Mrs. Hughes to keep it vague, even though Ethel says that she won't change her mind. Mrs. Hughes, don't Mrs. let don't let the fact that she's already backed out of this like three times in this season. Oh, but she's not going to change her mind Look, this time. I believe her this time. I mean, that's that's fine. Um, but anyway, so you know, Mrs. Hughes, though diplomat that she is, she's like, I'm just going to leave it vague, right? That way, nobody on either side is going to be disappointed. Mm. She's like, I'm just going to write to them, yeah. and it's fine. Yeah. Out in the hall, Mrs. Bird is there. I haven't seen her in a mm-hmm. bit. Uh, and Ethel is leaving, and Mrs. Bird very pointedly does not want to help her with her coat. Isabel makes her, uh, which she does very sullenly. Mm-hmm. Well, she doesn't actually help her in the coat. Right. She just we've holds just seen it out her to help her. Mrs. Hughes into her coat and get out. Yeah. And she, she said, oh, you know, we all know how she, you know, Ethel got herself out of her, her difficult situation. Right. And, uh, you know, and she, I have to say, and I wrote this down at the, the very beginning of the scene. I mean, I feel kind of sorry for Mrs. Bird. I mean, is just her and Isabel in that house. Mm-hmm. Like, she asks after Molesley, for God's sake. She misses Molesley. <laughs> Nobody misses Molesley. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and she's she's quite uh, self-righteous and bitchy about it and says she doesn't think it's any of her duties to wait on a prostitute, uh-huh. basically. Um, which is just sort of a... You know, she's not much in the world. Yeah. But she's not a prostitute. It's woman-on-woman violence, man. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. Speaking of woman-on-woman violence, (laughs) (laughs) it's now time for a recurring segment in which our brothel brainiac, Kelly Anakin, will give us a little history in fashion backwards. All right. So uh, this is less fashion than sort of social history, Mm -hmm. but I was very curious about prostitution and just sort of what that was like i was trying to find information on you know these sort of uh reform and recovery efforts like isabel is is participating in and there wasn't a whole lot of information about those in the 1920s most Mm. of what i found was they had these homes for fallen women in the victorian era right most of which were horrible um like the magdalene houses that kind of thing right the only one that was actually any good like in terms of like a pleasant place to be was the Urania cottage, which was run by Charles Dickens actually. Oh. Um, so he created this place for women who had fallen over. Mm-hmm. Also in the Victorian era, prime minister, William Ewart Gladstone uh, spent a lot of his time and money going out and, and, you know, doing outreach with prostitutes. Uh, his mm-hmm. wife, Catherine also assisted him in this. And uh, I found this quote. It's from author Anne Isba. She said, 
There are more entries in Gladstone's diaries about prostitutes than there are about political hostesses, more recorded visits to the fallen women on the streets of London than recorded attendances at the balls and soirees of the grand dames of polite Victorian society. So that speaks very highly of that guy. Yeah. There were some ladies. Uh, I, think, I think he was the one that Queen Elizabeth hated. So yeah, not Queen, Queen Victoria, Victoria. Yeah, hated. Uh, there are also uh, some, you know, societies set up for women to do work, and I think this is probably what Isabel's efforts have grown out of. But they were ladies' associations for the care of friendless girls, hmm. which had about 106 locations across Great Britain in I think 1895. And then the women's Christian temperance movement, which is also very active in America. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, you know, they worked hard. You know, they were interested in eradicating prostitution, mm-hmm. you know, much like they were interested in eradicating the consumption of alcohol. Right, right. And uh, things like that. Um, so one thing that I learned in my research, the, the phrase common prostitute, I thought was just an insult. Uh-huh. But it is, in fact, a term used in... English law, oh. specifically related to prostitution. I mean, duh. Yeah. But it was first used in the Vagrancy Act of 1824. And the Vagrancy Act of 1824 essentially made it illegal to be homeless or poor. Right. Basically, if somebody saw you sleeping on the street or asking anyone for money, you would be summarily thrown into prison. Mm-hmm. And they continued using that phrase in legal cases up until 2007. Uh, So it's only very recently that women in Britain can avoid being branded as a common prostitute in all legal matters Mm -hmm. uh, if this were, uh, if they were to be convicted of being a common prostitute. Also, in 1994, the case of director of public prosecutions versus bull determined that the term could only be applied to female and not male prostitutes, which is a very weird thing. Yeah. Well, and also what was, what was common prostitute? Like what would a non-common prostitute be? I don't know. Huh? Okay. Possibly like a courtesan or something like that. Yeah. You know, somebody who didn't work the street. All right. Okay. Um, I also tried to look into sort of male prostitution at the time. I know that, you know, rent boys were pretty common during Oscar Wilde's days. Right, right. But I couldn't find anything more specific about the 1920s. So, you know, I think suffice to say, they're around. (laughs) Yeah. So another thing that made it really difficult for prostitutes of this era was a an act that was passed in 1885 called the Suppression of Brothels Act. So basically, any person who kept, managed, or assisted in the management of premises used as a brothel or as the tenant or landlord of such premises was liable to a hefty fine or a maximum of three months imprisonment. Mm. Now, the act did not define what was referred to as a brothel. That was just sort of, you know, it was never specified what Mm -hmm. that meant. And then it wasn't until 1895 that the case Singleton versus Ellison decided that brothel referred to premises used by more than one woman for the purposes of prostitution. If you lived alone, not really a problem for you then. You're like, okay, yeah, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm only facing all of the other horrible things that can happen to me both legally and, you know, physically right. and mentally as a prostitute. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of uh, prostitutes would live together. In or, you know, so that they could, oh, you know, have a roof over their heads and yeah, they yeah. wouldn't be arrested for vagrancy. 
And, you know, these women couldn't afford to pay bribes or get any kind of legal representation or even afford to appeal any decisions that were handed down against them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there was like a, this huge crackdown in 1885 on, on prostitutes. And, you know, yeah, it uh, unfortunately targeted these kind of small operators. If you operated a very large brothel. Obviously, you could afford to grease the right wheels. Oh, sure. Um, so that's really depressing. Yeah. Well, and there are all kinds of cases of, you know, when a, a brothel that the nobility or monarchy was patronizing. Exactly. And then a representative of the crown would just sort of show up and hang out in the back of the court and stare at the judge until everything got dismissed. Yeah. <laughs> now, one way that they did kind of find around this... Um, there would be, you know, blocks of flats that women could rent a room in and then thereby kind of circumvent mm. this conviction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously everybody kind of knew that that was what was going on. So, you know, the other problem, though, with that is that then, you know, these slumlords would just, you know, completely screw these women over and just charge them ridiculous rates, mm-hmm. you know, just so they could keep the pittance of their salary that they weren't having to give to their pimp. Yeah. So this was a very terrible time to be a prostitute. <laughs> um, I'm not entirely sure that we are not still in a terrible time to be a prostitute, but things have definitely improved somewhat. I mean, yeah. you can not be branded a common prostitute in England anymore, <laughs> so that's good. I did read a little bit about sort of what contemporary attitudes were toward prostitutes, and we'll see some of this come out a little bit later when the Bryants show up. But researchers working at the time... Uh, their findings didn't necessarily support the idea that women became prostitutes primarily because they were poor, mm. because they said in times of great economic hardship, arrest rates for prostitution did not spike the way that they would expect them to. Mm. Um, but at the same time, this same article that I was reading was saying it was a bad article that had some good information <laughs> in it. Yeah. Uh, but basically, you know, in the interwar period, Poverty was a really important driving force behind, you know, women becoming prostitutes, as we kind of touched on in the last episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, employment opportunities for women at this time are expanding, but the vast majority of that is happening in the commercial sector, and it was very hard for people in a low class to enter that sector. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even somebody like Ethel, who is trained to be a housemaid, right? you know, she can't get work as a housemaid she i'm sure couldn't get work in a shop right right. you know so once you kind of fall into a lower class it became very difficult to take advantage of these new opportunities yeah and i mean gwen had to do a lot of outside work in order to get herself qualified it's true yeah and um i fun fact in the 1920s prostitutes were often paid a commission to steer clients to illegal gambling dens oh yeah so all the people who were still having their hangover from the days of king edward (laughs) um, (laughs) enjoyed uh some illegal gambling in in britain i wonder how that line went you know what really turns me on illegal gambling (laughs) (laughs) uh the going rate for uh uh rent services rendered news you can use uh at this time in the interwar period uh would have been less than a pound okay so even if you're having sex with you know 10 dudes a day (laughs) you're still only coming out 10 pounds ahead yeah maybe 
if you're lucky yeah if you have a magical vagina <laughs> um although i mean i i'm not sure what that like i'm not quite sure how much a pound was at the time mm-hmm. so well, a pound a pound is less than a guinea i think i don't understand british currency at all nobody did that's why they changed it (laughs) um so i want to talk a little bit more about sort of how society viewed these women Mm -hmm. uh particularly we've seen mrs bird be very very dismissive of ethel and i'm sure you know to a certain extent is that sort of recognizing in someone else you know at some point mrs bird had been a young housemaid Mm -hmm. and now she's a housekeeper so, yeah. you know, it's this idea of like, oh, well, I managed to to get through right. without getting pregnant, without having this child, without mm-hmm. becoming a prostitute. You know, I don't have any time for you. Yeah. Um, well, and it's, again, the sort of sympathy that it's it wasn't necessarily easy for. I mean, you know, it means that she's basically never had sex or at least not mm-hmm. more than once or twice. Yeah, that's true. And the only thing she got out of all that was the right to like be mean. Exactly. <laughs> to, Which to is Ethel. why sexism is horrible yeah. and internalized misogyny uh destroys everyone. Yes. Just the more you know. <laughs> um so it's hard for me to say exactly sort of how this all plays out you know, in Yorkshire or in Manchester. Right. right. Um, because all of this stuff that I'm finding, you know, all these studies were done in London because, you know, you go where the most prostitutes (laughs) are. So generally speaking, uh, wives and mothers were very, uh, mean to and about prostitutes because they were worried that their husbands and sons would give in, Mm -hmm. you know, to Mm -hmm. the temptation. Whereas unmarried women at the time were much more lax about it. Uh, you know, they, they didn't have quite as much, um, invested right. in, in hating them. Right. Um, and you know, people would call prostitutes names. They'd beat them up. There was, you know, a very difficult life for them, obviously. I mean, Ethel really seems like she's managed to kind of keep it together. Right. I realize that this is being sanitized for television. Yeah. But, but I'll tell you what, she sure is the prettiest prostitute that we meet in Downton Abbey. Very much is. <laughs> Do we meet any other prostitutes? Yeah, the ones at the Whore Institute. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the ones from Central Casting. Oh, right. My bad. Um, and really the only crimes committed by prostitutes were having sex for money. Mm-hmm. You know, they, anything else they would do would be kind of petty. They never really got involved in any of any organized crime, mm. you know, just like theft, occasionally public drunkenness. Well, sure. They, they weren't trouble. This is, this is what really made me angry when I was researching this. I'm like, mm-hmm. why is prostitution illegal? Mm-hmm. And like, it, you know, it hasn't always been. Right. But I mean, it's just completely insane to me. Yeah. I'm like, what? So what if somebody wants to pay somebody to have sex with them? Like, you cannot like them and you can be mean to them, but for God's sake, let's not ruin lives. You know, we we both feel that we don't care about sex that doesn't involve us. Exactly. So that's that's how we are. We're pretty chilled out like that, (laughs) y'all. Can't we all just get along, man? Despite the fact that prostitutes generally had a difficult time befriending their neighbors, uh, there is a story of this one woman in her poverty-stricken childhood in 1920s Birmingham, she commented that there was this, you know, woman who was looked down upon for being a prostitute, but it was mitigated somewhat because she would sometimes use her money to pay the rent of other neighbors who, you know, mm. were having hard times. And I mean, I think, you know, that's the case in anything. It's like, oh, you know, I don't like prostitutes, but I know this one really nice prostitute. Yeah. She's not so bad. She's very well-spoken. Right. And uh, my favorite 
sort of anecdote that I found, um, there was some research done about the Jewish community in Soho during the interwar years. And apparently the prostitutes were very, very friendly with the locals. It was a very low income neighborhood. So everybody kind of knew who the prostitutes were, Mm -hmm. you know, some of them were Jewish, many of them were not, but, um, oftentimes, uh, the prostitutes would be enlisted to turn the lights on and off during the Sabbath because huh. they could work and, and uh, the Jewish residents could not. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, a man named Heim Lewis had a friend uh, who hung out outside of their synagogue and just was super nice. And she would, you know, give them toys and gifts. You know, he was a right. child at the time. And sometimes a client would come up and she'd be like, oh, hang on. Five minutes, be right back. <laughs> and, you know, she'd go off, bang the dude, and then just come back and pick up the conversation. And it just, you know, I found that very touching. Like, yeah, I just thought it was yeah. really great and for people to be more nonchalant about it. Because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, prostitutes are people. They're not demons yeah. walking among us. <laughs> They're just trying to make money. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, it was a very lonely existence, which we've seen for sure with Ethel. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, more often than not, they would not be in contact with their family and friends, either because their family and friends had found out that they were being prostitutes uh, or because they just didn't want them to know. So right. they figured, you right. know, let's just not give them that option to even find out. Yeah. Um, one thing, and I think this may be a bit more true of prostitutes who were living in London, but about 10% of them were, you know, kind of employed on and off, you know, as chorus girls, or they'd be extra in, extras in films, or work as waitresses, things like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of these women were working more than one job. Probably not an option for Ethel mm-hmm. because she has this kid, right? Um, but you know, it kind of goes along with why people kind of found actors and other such people to be kind of unsavory, yeah, um, yeah, even up into the present day, yeah, um, yeah. So that's what I learned about prostitution <laughs> uh, during the interwar period, yeah. That's that's good. Uh, did not. I, I do wish we saw uh, how Charlie's childcare had been handled. I do too, because they. I, I didn't find very many articles that were about that. These right. all seem to be about single women, or, right? Uh, you know, childless women, right? Well, and it. But I mean, it seems to me that you know, presumably she had some acquaintances, either prostitutes themselves mm-hmm. or just other low class woman who would help out with her and you know maybe she was taking a turn with their kids or something like that but mm-hmm. i just think it would have been nice to see that because it would have a shown kind of what you're talking about the human side of prostitution exactly because while at the same time showing you know how horrible it probably was for i mean mm-hmm. we could have really gotten to see both sides of that yeah and i just you know i feel that Downton Abbey is kind of exoticizing it in a really weird way. Yeah. Because, you know, every other prostitute that they're showing is a caricature. Yeah. And they're also just, you know, they're giving us no information about what her life is like. Yeah. And she looks clean. She looks healthy. Yeah. You know, I thought she was dying. That would have been more interesting to me. Yeah. Like her and the other uh, prostitutes is pretty much the same as like Bates and the other prisoners. Yeah. 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 So it's. You know, it's a bit weird. It's, it's. I mean, I realize this isn't the wire or anything. Oh right. But you know, a little bit of context on Ethel would have been nice. We, it would have been nice. Not, not the worst sin in this episode alone. Which but. is why, in this edition of Fashion Backwards, I have endeavored to provide you with some context. <laughs> yes. 
Well, thank you. You're very welcome. It's time at last for the toffee-nosed dinner we were <laughs> promised at the beginning of the episode. Uh, the Archbishop is talking with Lord Grantham and says that he doesn't want to sound anti-Catholic. And Lord Grantham says he loves sounding anti-Catholic. <laughs> it is his favorite thing. He's like, I often worry that I don't sound anti-Catholic enough. <laughs> and the Archbishop is like, whoa, buddy. I'm the Archbishop of York. You need stepped off. Like, this is crazy. Yeah. Uh, so he says he doesn't want thumbscrews in the rack, but there is always something of a Johnny Foreigner about the Catholics. Yeah. Which, this is actually really the line I was thinking of more when I said before that Baron Fellows is in on the joke on this one and uh-huh. making fun of Lord Grantham, because he does sound so dumb here. Uh-huh. But I do think that there, you know, and this, as an American myself, I don't even know if this is true, but I do think that the depth of anti-Catholic sentiment in England is something that we don't really understand yeah. in America. And I mean, I think, you know, certainly far, and far I mean, less in the present day. We've done day. our fair share of Catholic hating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's, it was brought over here on the Mayflower. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the whole Massachusetts colony and everything was vehemently anti-Catholic mm-hmm. and it was the whole English civil war was largely about, I mean, it was about a lot of things, but Charles the first's like tolerance of Catholics was one of the things that made mm-hmm. people the most angry that he was repeatedly like allowing priests to live and things like that really made people mad. So yeah, just an, uh, but I, I mean, I was actually, I was just glad to see the issue get addressed. Right. Just because I know that it was so important to people mm-hmm. and the fact that we've never had any discussion of well, any sort of religion. Is Sybil Catholic now? Right. She would literally have to be. She would have to be. There's no way. I was way. raised Catholic. You can't get married in a Catholic church unless you go through RCIA. Yeah. Which they probably didn't have back then. <laughs> so yeah, at least, at least the subject has been raised. Uh, next scene. It's dark. Someone's on a bike. It's not the beginning of the episode. That can't be right. <laughs> no, I agree, but it is. It's dark and it's raining. Uh, there's a bike. Somebody else is on foot. Uh, Sybil picks up a phone in a mysterious location. Says that she's uh, has no time to talk, but tell them that I'm all right. I'm out of the flat, and they haven't stopped me. And then she hangs up the phone as some people walk into this mysterious place she's in where anybody can just walk in and pick up the phone and make calls. Apparently. Apparently. Uh, this is the worst edited scene I have ever seen Ever. Yeah. And I've was... seen Mono's Hands of Fate. <laughs> yeah. This scene was so confusing and poorly done and out of nowhere. I mean, I'm still not entirely sure who's running around with the bike and the mm. hey, hey, hey. Right. And and my final question to Sybil is, if you're so all right, why are you wearing that hat? <laughs> <laughs> Man, boom. <laughs> you will not let up. I thought her hair looked better this episode. I th- I actually agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah, then we get somebody running through some branches. Is this the same person from before? No way of knowing. Go back to film school, Baron Fellows. Yeah. Very dissatisfying. It is just terrible. You have no idea what's going on. Yeah. So Edith goes into the drawing room and tells McGee and Mary that she just had the most peculiar conversation with Sybil. And so she explains what she said, and, and McGee and Mary are like, what? And then, <laughs> so well, time for dinner. Yeah. Um, yeah. At dinner... The Dowager Countess asks the Prince of the Church if, uh, has the war driven people back into churches or further away than ever? And he gives her some, like, Michelle Obama-level side-eye <laughs> on that question. It is fantastic. He does. Unfortunately, he never answers the question because I want to know. Did it? <laughs> I know. Well, I would have liked it if he had said, oh, I 
I couldn't possibly say. I haven't been to church in years. Frightfully tedious, I find. <laughs> I just go to fancy dinners now. <laughs> That's what I would do if I was an archbishop. I mean, it's like, a- you know, I put in all those years. <laughs> I'm done. I've, I've had enough church for everyone. Yes. Uh, but somebody starts knocking at the door. Knock, knock, knocking <clears throat> on Crawley's door. Yeah. And the uh, prince of the church uh, says, uh, be- <clears throat> behold, I stand at the door and knock. Which I presume is a Bible verse. It sounds familiar. I've yeah. heard it before, but in any case, Alfred heads off to to see what's up. It's Branson. What? He's wearing a very stupid hat. It must <laughs> be one of Sybil's. I don't know. He's dressed like Django Unchained. He for is for some reason. I'm yeah. like, what is going on here? I don't understand you. Yeah. Uh, he's soaking wet, as I guess he's been this unidentified person who's been thrashing around in the underbrush. Right. So then Mary comes in because of, like, this is why you have a footman, asshole. Right. Well, it had been more than three seconds, so. <laughs> so Mary goes in and she's like, oh, Tom, where's Sybil? <laughs> and he's like, oh, I can explain, but nobody's allowed to know that I'm here. So then Matthew comes in and Mary's like, uh, go get some dry clothes. She tells Alfred to have Mrs. Hughes get some food for him. I'm like, I feel somehow that he should have been subjected to greater scrutiny. Right, but he, well, appar- like if they wait five more seconds, then three more people are going to come out and check on them. So, yeah, like, that's apparently true. very little time. Uh, then we cut to Mary and Matthew walking back in, and Mary saying, "Oh, some idiotic man." So apparently, in the previous, uh, you know, two seconds, Matthew has walked upstairs to his room with Matthew. Branson. Didn't go with him. Branson went by himself. Okay, which I thought I thought, I thought she weird. told Matthew to take him to. No, her. Oh, okay. she told Branson to go by himself and do it. Okay, then I take that criticism back. She says, "Some idiotic man with a village pamphlet." Can you believe? Uh, and then once again leans over to Lord Grantham and in a not particularly low voice says that it was Branson. Uh, but, you know, please keep it a secret from the other people three feet away from me. Which they don't. Literally every other person has something. <laughs> to, like, it's Edith and the Archbishop who don't say anything. Right. And I'm like, they're right there. Yeah. I Yeah, including the Dowager Countess chimes in who is, uh, you know, sitting, as we've discussed, right next to the bishop. Anyway. So it's all very mysterious like, and annoying. Baron Fellows, I don't know if you understand this. Like real whispering is not like stage whispering. Yeah. Other people can actually hear you. Yeah, indeed. Also, uh, he, uh, Lord Grantham complains that uh, his family is abnormal and that other people have sons-in-laws that uh, farm or preach or he could serve have had their a country in the that army. He was a farmer. And served in the army. Mm-hmm. You had this chance. What a jerk. Everyone's upset still about yeah. Sir Anthony Strallen. Yeah. I mean, by next week, I'll have forgotten. It's a fast-moving show. <laughs> still upset right oh, now. Oh, I hope he comes back. I'm still shipping. I, you know, anything. Even li- though Edith seems to be getting political. Literally anything could happen. <laughs> literally. Downstairs, Daisy asks if Branson is running from the police and everybody is speculating about what's going on. Uh, but then Carson comes in and he takes Daisy's tea tray away from her and says that they should not be gossiping. Thomas is bumped out. <laughs> yeah. He's the Perez Hilton of Downton Abbey. <laughs> Uh, upstairs, Branson is explaining what's happened. Apparently, uh, the, the Irish Republicans turned out the family, uh, the drum ghouls out of their castle and then burned it down, horrifying everyone. Uh, yeah, ex- but the Dowager Countess is sitting there working out her tight five about <laughs> how ugly the drum ghoul's house was. <laughs> yeah. 
the tone of this scene is so wrong. Right. Because Branson looks very much like a man who's like running for his life. Everybody else is like, hold up. Where's Sybil again? Right. Go back to the part where you say where Sybil... Because you never said where Sybil is. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Dowager Countesses, they're like, drum ghoul. More like slum ghoul. Am I right? <laughs> hey! <laughs> Tip your bar and wait, everybody. <laughs> Except for the Irish ones. <laughs> I'm just I'm just kidding. Tip those gingers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Um, and... Yeah. So, Matthew wants to know about what Branson's involvement was, Mary pointing out that he seems to know a lot about it for somebody who wasn't involved. He says that Sybil wasn't involved at all, but that he is suspected of being an instigator, uh, which is why he had to run, because he knew he wouldn't get a fair hearing in Ireland. Everybody is quite upset that he left Sybil behind, uh, and, uh, you know, justifiably so. And uh, McGee, thinking practically, says that Lord Grantham needs to go see the Home Secretary, and Branson says that he he was there, uh, but he's very sorry. It was much worse than he thought it would be. He says, uh, uh, Lord Grantham says something about, what, what were you there for? For the fun of seeing private property destroyed? Which, Lord Grantham, I'm not sure if you're aware, but that's very fun. It's extremely seeing fun private to watch. property destroyed. I just a saw time. a photo last night of a building that was on fire, <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, that's amazing. Watch any local news broadcast anytime. They will lead with private property being destroyed nine times out of ten. Yeah. Car, house, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, People love it. Yeah. They can't get enough private property destruction. How? Where? Why do you think the communists did so well mm, in this part of the century? That's a good point. In any case, Edith once again brings the conversation back to Sybil. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, he went ahead. She stayed behind to close up the flat. He had already caught the last boat. What does that consist of what, like, beyond locking the door? I don't understand. Like, what? Well, because it's like, did he have like some incriminating materials there that needed to be destroyed? Right. But Do, that isn't consistent with what happens later in the episode. Yeah, like what? It's like, well, we're in the middle of a jigsaw puzzle. She really wanted to get that finished. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I mean, look, I will grant that traveling separately might be a better idea. Yeah, like for both I, of them, right? I'm not totally. I'm I'm less angry with Branson about leaving Sybil behind than say Sybil's family is. Yeah, you know, there it's potentially reasonable, but. What does closing up the flat mean? That's our only question. Uh, McGee again says that Lord Grantham has to see the Home Secretary for Sybil's sake, if nothing else. And Lord Grantham says, I don't have to do anything! And uh, he'll give Branson his answer in the morning. God, so, I guess I know where Matthew learned how to be a whiny baby. Yeah. Branson goes to bed and cries. <sighs> oh, Alan Leach. I just liked him so much better when he was begging Octavia. Oh, yeah. That was so great That was so great. They had a baby or something. Yeah. I think. I liked him better when he was just being saucy. I know. And Mm. not... I just... Ugh. Well, we'll continue complaining about this for the next 30 minutes or so, (laughs) so... Uh, Downstairs, surprisingly, Carson's ban on gossip has not been enforced. The heck you say? (laughs) Yes. uh, Mosley says that Sybil married beneath her. Uh, O'Brien wonders what will happen if Branson goes to prison. Uh, and then Carson puts the, the, the kibosh on the gossip again. I, I do wonder what will happen if Branson goes to prison. New theory. Perhaps over the next few seasons of Downton Abbey, every character will wind up in prison one way or another. <laughs> and it'll just become Oz set in England in the 1940s. Oh my god. 
you know what? I really wish that we could like re-edit this season and cut out all the parts that we hate. And like instead of all the parts in Murder Prison, it's just <laughs> scenes from Oz. Wow. That would be so much better. <laughs> oh, man. Just be Harold Perrineau <laughs> being like, the sun. What is it? How come it's there? Laura Linney could show up and like tap dance or something. Boy, she is the Harold Perrineau of Downton Abbey. Well, she was. I know. It's like when his kid, ca- well, never mind. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Can't talk about that if you haven't seen Oz. Why haven't you seen Oz? Scott Beatty Wong. <laughs> uh, so Carson turns around, uh, and immediately goes into Mrs. Hughes's parlor to start gossiping about Branson. <laughs> Because he's so classy. Yeah. Uh, he says he knew that this would happen. He knew Brant's would bring shame on their house. So I have uh, to say, it, it is actually good news for Carson. One of his predictions of doom has actually come true. Yeah. Like, Branson actually has brought shame on their house. Well, he was a uh, soothsayer on the side when he was back with the cheerful <laughs> Charlies. <laughs> he was like Professor Marvel. Uh, so he has figured out from eavesdropping, I assume, yeah. that Branson's on the run from the police and Sybil is in a dungeon somewhere in Dublin. <laughs> They have many dungeons in Dublin. Uh, you know. Also, is that a good theatrical warm-up? Dungeons in Dublin. Dungeons in Dublin. Dungeons in Dublin. That's not bad. Yeah, it's pretty good. I'll make a note of it. Uh, anyway, Mrs. Hughes doesn't give a fuck <laughs> about this at all because she has a priority straight. She whips out her electric toaster. Uh, not a euphemism. <laughs> oh. And shocks Carson. Not literally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but she's like, oh, I bought myself an electric toaster because... I, you know, if it goes well, we'll get one for the upstairs breakfasts. Yep. And Carson gets all upset. He's like, oh, my God, there's an Irish radical in this house. Do not be flashing your electronics in my face. <laughs> Down in the servants' hall, a ridiculously attractive man arrives. So attractive! Oh, my God. And the Why don't you look like him, Poindexter? I- I'm sorry. He already looks like him. <laughs> um... But the entire staff is speechless when they see this guy. Like, including a mystery servant who has one of the best reaction shots <laughs> in the series history. Go and, back and watch the scene, people. Yeah, really do, because it is classic. No, and like, every person that comes into the servant's hall, <laughs> like, they just, they see him and they just like get transfixed and they can't look away. Yeah. Thomas is so adorable. Because <laughs> at first he's suspicious, but like it's like then he like yeah, yeah just to like be unsuspicious. And he's like, whoa, yeah. And you make my erotic pen pal look like a dog. <laughs> Even Mrs. Hughes, you know, she stays professional, but she is not immune. Yeah, it is. It is not uh, beyond her uh, purview to be a little Twitter pated <laughs> by this young man who we discovered his name is Jimmy Kent. Yes, yes, Jimmy Kent. Yeah. Kind of cross between Jimmy Olsen and Clark Kent. I was literally just about to say that. <laughs> guess what, everyone? We didn't even talk about it beforehand. No, it's true. Serendipity. <laughs> but more attractive than either. So everybody's back up in the library. Uh, by the way, it's the next day, clearly. Yeah, sure. Uh, Lord Grantham is blustering and, and seething in the library about how Ireland shenanigans need to be put to a stop if they're ever gonna like rule themselves which i think ireland would disagree a telegram for you my lord apparently uh, the irish rebels heard your complaints and they decided to stop being ornery (laughs) uh so he says he's going to see mr short the home secretary yes but it's not for branson it's for sybil he's made that perfectly clear uh and then he faces off against branson uh, and, and, cause Branson is saying, oh, you know, Sybil won't call the house. She won't give them anything to trace her by. And I'm like, didn't she just do that last night? Like, was she in a safe house? It like, was, 
once again, lack of context yeah. will really sink you. Yeah. Because I got it done without all those shots of Branson crashing around in the underbrush. Like, nope. All he has to do is show up dressed like Django Unchained and soaking wet. That's yeah. all he has to do. It, it would have worked better that way. Either give us, either actually set well, some. Well, because then there would have been some real suspense. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um but quick, I, just quick note, Edward Short, the home secretary, I just looked him up real quick to see if there's any interesting thing about him. Uh, the only thing I found was that in parliament, he quote, had a reputation for laziness. <laughs> well, so just, <laughs> well, Sybil, I hope you enjoy dungeons. <laughs> uh, so when Branson says that Sybil wouldn't want anybody to trace her, Lord Grantham says, Oh, what a harsh world you live in. And then Branson gets, gets off a great line that we'd give him full marks for, except that we hate him so much now. Right. He says, we all live in a harsh world, but at least I know I do. And, like, he, like, gives himself a little smile. Yeah. Like, you know, that's less of a victory than burning down a castle, (laughs) which you seem now to be regretting. Yeah. Uh, Downstairs, in the fun plot line, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Carson interviews young Jimmy Kent, and he apparently had been working for the Dowager Lady Anstruther, that she closed her house and moved to France. Uh, and he says that she begged me to stay on, but he didn't want to. And Carson... He didn't think he liked the food. Which I'm right. like, have you seen British... Don't yeah. they mostly cook French food in England right now anyway? It's like, don't you even know how to boil your meat? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Carson is a little bit skeptical that uh, the Dowager Lady Anstruther begged him, but Jimmy Kent says, well, you know what women can be like. And Carson says, not as well as you do, which, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty nice. Carson's having a good episode. Yeah, yeah, he is. We get a shot of, uh, Ethel bringing her adora baby. Uh, <laughs> cute baby. Very cute. Terrible actor. Adorable baby. Adorable baby. Very adorable baby. Yes. He's got, oh, she's dressed him up. She puts his hat on because she says, I want you to look smart. Yeah. And it is like so sad. It's really sad. Because, you know, sad. as terrible an actor as that kid is, <laughs> uh, this lady that plays Ethel, whose name I can't remember. Right. Because I got Rose Leslie on the brain because yeah. I just saw the production stills from Game of Thrones <laughs> season three. Uh, but she puts his hat on him and she smooches him and she's just, you know, cuddling him and she, ah, oh, it is freaking heartbreaking yeah and he really is too young to be a good actor in any case like let's 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 get the cut the kid a little slack they could have pinched him or something he's like four he's not even four well whatever he is he's like two so so oh i'm sorry let me just point you in the direction of a very successful pair of twins named mary kate and ashley olsen tom they started acting when they were nine months old and they were great (laughs) (laughs) moving on Uh, in Isabel's house, Mr. Bryant is being very rude, as as is his custom. If you've ever wondered how Mr. Banks would have turned out if Mary Poppins never showed up. This is the guy. This is your answer. He uh, He's uh, talking about how he didn't want to let Mrs. Bryant in the same room with Ethel. Uh, but apparently they uh, have been keeping tabs on her. They've been having her followed and uh, keeping an eye on how their son or grandson is doing. He says that they could give her a list of her clients, which... Ethel is just like crestfallen. Yeah. And I was very sad as well. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, you know, that's pretty rough. Also, how about we all start a little blackmail ring to put a, to put little Charlie through school? That's a really good idea. I mean, come on, people. I'm down. Let's think outside the box here a little <laughs> bit. 
But Mrs. Bryant, the good cop, uh, says that they have decided to give her some money to help her take care of Charlie. Then Isabel hears Mrs. Bird with the tea, so Ethel goes out to help Isabel with that. Uh, and Mr. Bryant gives Charlie a teddy bear, which mm-hmm. he is very happy to see. So out in the hallway, Ethel offers to help Mrs. Bird with her tray, and Mrs. Bird continues her douchebaggery campaign. Is like, <laughs> I don't need help from the likes of you. Yeah. And Isabel's like, cool it. She's right here. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Mrs. Bird leaves, and Isabel decides that now is a great time to pitch Ethel on keeping her baby again. Uh, she's like those people that protest outside abortion clinics. <laughs> like, it's too late. Yeah. They already showed, they took the day off work, okay? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then Ethel, uh, is talking with her and Isabel's like, oh, you know, maybe he won't go to a famous school or university, but he'll still have his mother's love. And then Ethel just kind of takes a pause and goes, yet Mr. Crowley went to a famous school or university. And, ah, yeah, boom. Yeah. If we had a boom award, (laughs) this would win because Isabel just got all of the problems of what she's trying to do at the Horn Institute fucking handed to her on a platter yeah because it's like look that's fine but you can't really understand right the position that she's in mm-hmm. and you know it's important that she know that yeah isabel just got served mm-hmm. <sighs> back at murder prison ah! thankfully kelly took the notes on as as usual because i just wrote <laughs> but Bates is plotting with Dent to get his privileges back or whatever, and he asks Dent why he's helping him, and Dent just can't stand Craig, and that's what's happening. That's boring. Also, if Dent double-crosses him and we have to spend more time in this (laughs) stupid plot line, I am going to blow a gasket. Yeah. Back in the parlor at Isabel's house, Mrs. Bryant is complimenting Ethel's skill at tea service, and Ethel mentions that she was trained by Mrs. Hughes, and Mrs. Hughes compliments Ethel's work ethic. Mrs. Bryant is trying to convince Ethel to accept their money and says, you know, they wish her well, including Mr. Bryant. I just like how delusional this woman is. Like, (laughs) I really think she doesn't know. Yeah. Well, then Mr. Bryant says, well, we don't wish you will. I'll say that. To be fair, that may be the nicest thing he's ever said to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, Ethel says uh, that she can't accept their offer. They're not going to be friends because she's giving Charlie back to them. I assume that's what she says. Because, right. of course, we don't get to see that heartfelt moment. Yeah. If you want to see what that looks like, a mother giving up her son, uh, you can't. Mm-mm. You can't. You can't. Not allowed. Suck it. In the library at Downton, Matthew is looking uh, somewhat confusedly through some of the uh, Downton Abbey papers. Uh, <laughs> I just see him saying, like, this paper just says, to do. Figure out where money comes from. <laughs> Um, but <laughs> Mary, uh, Mary says these finally started the, the Augean, Augean? It should be the Aegean task. Well, except it's, it's spelled differently than the Aegean Sea. I know. Anyway. But it's the Aegean Stables. Right. Well, in any case, uh, study your classics, people. <laughs> we can't do all the work for you. Especially when we forget to. <laughs> um, uh, and they speculate about whether Lord Grantham will be able to see the Home Secretary. Uh, Mary asks Carson uh, for some tea. 
and they discuss the footman scenario. There's one who is solid and another who they euphemistically say is a knockout. And Mary enthusiastically advises him to go with the handsome footman, make us all happy around here or some such. Because she says Alfred is very good, but he looks like a puppy who's been left in a puddle. (laughs) Yeah. Which is actually a really accurate way of describing him. It is. This is actually a really nice, fun little scene. Yeah. I mean, like, also, oh, hey, remember how you don't know where your sister is and she could be dead and (laughs) pregnant or pregnant and in prison. I remember Branson's around and... uh, Yeah, but they still got this footman thing to deal with. I can't believe all this is happening while Lauren's out of town. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Carson says that Alfred is, uh, very, uh, willing, I think, or just very, he's complimentary of Alfred and says, even if he is Miss O'Brien's nephew and, uh, Mary and Matthew have a good laugh about how that's such a problem because they don't really know O'Brien or care about how people feel downstairs, Nope. which, you know, seems historically accurate to me. Outside Isabel's house, Ethel is saying goodbye to Charlie, who is uh, strangely sanguine about yeah. being separated from his mother. He's pretty chill. Well, again, I'd like to know what his childcare situation well, is. Well, exactly. Yeah. If he just it thinks would, that this is another, like, I just, you know, it's, there's well, it's, no way of it knowing. Would, it would provide really important context to the scene. Yeah. Anyway, um, so she's hugging him and kissing him, and Mr. Bryant pulls Charlie away and says, let's not make a meal of it, which is kind of not nice, but he also kind of has a point. Like, yeah. Yeah, You know, it's going to happen. There's no yeah. sense in prolonging it. So uh, Mrs. Bryant says, you know, she'll write to Ethel and let her know how Charlie's doing. And Ethel kind of finally allows herself to be hit with the gravity of the situation and right. says, oh, I'll never see my son again. And Mrs. Bryant hopefully says, you know, never's a long time. And I mean, when you think about it, by the time Charlie comes of age, it's going to be like 19... I mean, well, not you know, by the time he's like 30 or 40, but like sure. he'll live through, you know... Like the sexual revolution and all yeah, these yeah, things, yeah. you know, he might, yeah, he might not mind so much. It's hard to say. Well, and it's not clear to me what their plan is to tell him mm-hmm. about Ethel now that he's old enough to actually potentially remember her. Well, she says that he won't remember her, and I mean, okay. he's, he's only got to be two years old. Okay. You're aging him up, but he is not that old. All right, there's absolutely no way he's that old. Okay, then yeah, well then that that makes more sense. Yeah. Um. So, you know, Mrs. Bryanson, like, oh, I'm going to go before my husband, you know, murders me. <laughs> and then Ethel just bursts into tears as she stands with Mrs. Hughes and Isabel and watches their car drive away. Um, Mrs. Hughes tells Ethel that she did the right thing. And, you know, Isabel disagrees. And she's like, oh, I don't want to cast doubt in your mind now that it's done. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, my favorite part of the scene is that Ethel's like, well, I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. She's like, peace out. Yeah. Well, because she says something about how I've fallen too far and there's no way back. and But Isabel's like, but there is a way back. My meddling. My meddling. <laughs> yeah. And I, I will say, like, this, if this storyline had just been what happened in this one episode and not, like, four false starts leading up to it. Uh-huh. And, you know, as annoying as we find Isabel. But I, I thought, I was actually surprised. I thought it was handled well. This, and This was one of the better handled storylines yeah. of this episode. Yeah, I agreed. mean, the best one is, you know, as you say, the fun one. <laughs> right. Where they hired Jimmy Kent. But this one, you know, is pretty solid. At murder prison. Ah! <laughs> Guards come in, uh, put Bates and Craig against the wall, find something in Craig's bed, 
We think it's opium. Yeah, there was something said about somebody being Craig's dealer on the outside, so whatever. Craig says Bates will be sorry, and Bates just laughs, and that storyline continues. Stop talking! (laughs) Uh, A car drives up to Downton. Presumably it was carrying Sybil, because we see her walking into the Great Hall, and then Branson comes in, because he's been paying attention. Mm -hmm. That's what I always wonder when people, like, come into Downton and people like run in I'm like how did you even know they were here <laughs> this house is huge yeah uh, they hug and kiss and there's a 360 dolly shot and I guess we're supposed to be moved by all this for some reason I mean I will say that I was very slightly just because you know as somebody that gets worried anytime you're gone for like an hour yeah like not true. a lot I just a little bit and having your wife lost and potentially in a dungeon somewhere not being able to know where she is your pregnant wife your pregnant wife i would also be quite relieved yeah in that situation yeah well he apologizes to her she says it's all right i guess i'm just not moved because i've been in so many 360 degree dolly shots myself <laughs> it's like this again yeah well it's just the rest of the storyline is so terrible that it's hard to get invested yeah, in any of it exactly yeah in the uh the drawing room uh, Sybil is defending Branson, saying that, you know, they had, they had planned this out in advance, that it, he, would, he didn't leave her. And McGee says, well, of course, you mustn't travel anymore until the baby comes. And Sybil says, but Branson wants it born in Dublin. And Mary says, surely he won't hold you to that now, which I... I, I back her up on that one. I do too, but yeah. I also like how they've reverted to talking about him like he's not there anymore. <laughs> yeah, because he is standing there this whole time, and that's it is it is funny. And and I I agree with everybody. I think it might be better for the baby to be born in a city that isn't like on fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like let's <laughs> let's let's keep it that. It's gonna way. be a hot time in the old maternity <laughs> ward tonight. <laughs> and then Mary uh, snaps at Branson, saying, "How could he do that to the uh, the what was her name? Drum McDrugals Drum Ghouls Drum Ghouls <laughs> Yes. <laughs> How could you do this to the drum ghouls? They're like us. We came, I came out with what's her name that's in the family now and all this stuff. And Branson, uh, cause he's like, oh, it was much worse than I thought. And just, I, I regret it now and all this stuff, which to me is far worse mm-hmm. than if he had, like, if you're gonna do, like, I hate so much that he's wimped out like this. He was not the wimping so out much. type. This is I what know. I'm talking about when I talk about how Thomas is the only character that's consistent with the way he was introduced. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this is the problem with this whole thing. Like, there's bad editing and it's, it's poorly handled a lot of ways, but fundamentally, what, how can Branson have just been like, oh, then I saw a house burning down and it sucked and that was too much for me? No, like, like they didn't it. kill them. Yeah. They, they didn't, didn't kill them. them. I'm sure they have another house. Yeah. It was, again, in retaliation for the black and tans burning down a bunch of Irish people's houses. Like, it didn't just come out of nowhere. It's, what, what, what are you thinking? How, and how are we supposed to sympathize? Who are we supposed to sympathize in this situation? Jimmy Kent. (laughs) (laughs) He can have my sympathy anytime. It's a bit of all right. (laughs) Um, Anyway, a telegram arrives from Lord Grantham. Uh, He's coming back. All he says is that uh, Sybil and Branson should not leave the house. Uh, They should have known that already. Well, right. Don't think they were planning to. Downstairs, Mosley informs Thomas that there is, in fact, a new footman. Uh, he asks how London was, and Thomas said it was fun, leading me to continue to believe that he met up with his erotic pen pal. Yeah. 
What? While Lord Grantham was waiting to see the Home Secretary. Well, and I... I'm just going to pop out for a bit, my lord. (laughs) Yeah. And I think also quite possible that that may just be a subtext that the actor brought to that. Because he just says it was fun, actually. Uh And he he gives a little saucy look I know. I like it. Yeah. That's why I'm saying this is just a story that I've made up in my own head. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I just... I think he got a quick blowy while he was there. Yeah. You know? Let off a little steam. <laughs> Molesley asks if the firebrand has been saved, and then Thomas says it's nobody's damn business if he has or not, which is the correct answer yeah. for a valet to give. Yeah, although had somebody other than Molesley asked, I'm not sure he would have gotten the same That's answer. That's true. But then Thomas is walking down the hall uh, and walks past a room in which uh, young Mr. Kent is changing his shirt and then stops and backs back <laughs> Man, Jimmy Kent is like the Zoolander of Downton Abbey. He's really, really ridiculously good looking. <laughs> he is. He aims his blue steel right at Thomas. Uh, yeah. Oh my god. And they, uh, he, Thomas, uh, welcomes him and, uh, and, you know, they have a little conversation about how Thomas would be happy to help him out in any way he needs it. Uh, and, and Tom- So, uh, reach around, just five minutes. <laughs> just real quick, just, oh, I'm really nervous about serving this dinner and. It's still illegal. They got to work their way up to it. But yeah. the, the groundwork seems to have been laid. Yeah, I can't figure out if he's gay or not. Yeah, like I'm not like... He seems like he might be. It, it seems very possible. It just like the, the nature of his relationship with uh, whatever that dowager lady was, mm. Arthur Bruce or... Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Dustbuster, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Pillbox. <laughs> uh, there was just a little bit of like the... The whiff of, like, she liked him because he was, like, a non-threatening, attractive gay man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Nothing, certainly nothing definitive. Uh, but then, after Thomas walks off, O'Brien walks in, <laughs> stops in the doorway, looks at him, and then just shakes her head and keeps going. It is fantastic. That, I, every time that we watch this, <laughs> I went back and watched that at least two times. Oh, my God. Yeah. Someone make me a gif. Yeah. <laughs> Lord Grantham has returned also. Uh, so up in the library, he informs uh, Sybil and Branson that they can never go back to Ireland because it turns out that Branson went to the planning meetings for the destruction of the Dungool's castle. Yes. Uh, which Sybil didn't know. Yeah. Which is not good. No. Like if you're gonna, like anytime Tom goes to a guerrilla warfare meeting, he always tells me. Yeah. It's important to know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do try to keep you informed. I was also momentarily confused because you said Tom, and I thought you were talking about Branson. We've been over this. <laughs> I know. You're Tom. I'm, I, He's Branson. It's, that's my fault. It's like that episode of The Simpsons where the real Seymour Skinner comes back. <laughs> uh, anyway, Sybil's not allowed to go back to Ireland because they don't want her getting involved, and they, they name drop a bunch of, you know, Anglo-Irish uh, noble women who have gotten very invested in the cause of Irish uh, independence. Yeah, less basically the argument with the Home Secretary is that Sybil could become one of these yes. women. Um, they don't want to martyr, uh, but but yeah, they they can't go back to Ireland. Lord Grantham says that's the best I could manage. Which mm-hmm. oh, I'm sure I'm sure you really worked your ass off yeah. to get Branson the best possible treatment. You know, and I don't really feel that Branson deserves any help. I don't think. Branson should have run off with his revolutionary buddies and gone into hiding. Yeah. That's what real revolutionaries do. Absolutely. Not go back 
to their, you know, yeah. aristocratic in-laws house and cry. Yeah. Like this is what he I He should have gone out and burned out another castle and another castle and another castle like, until Aaron go bra or whatever. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I thought all along Branson and Sybil were going to get mixed up in this. I mean, obviously, and I thought it would be great. I thought it would be awesome. I, I thought that they would get really involved. I thought like something would happen to one of them and like it would be great. Yeah. But this is terrible. This yeah. is ending this really interesting part of both English and Irish history with a freaking whimper. Yeah. When it clearly should end in more property damage. <laughs> yes. I just don't understand what is so upsetting. Like, cause he even says, uh, in this scene with the Dowager Countess, like saying, you know, crack and wise, he's like, right. Oh, you know, you don't understand those places are horrible to me. So enjoy right. watching it burn. Yeah. What? They it's, weren't hurting the people. Yeah. What? You're sad because they were cold? They couldn't have even been that cold. The house it, was on fire. <laughs> I just don't like losing their home. Big freaking deal. Yeah. Plenty of people lose it's, their homes all the time in circumstances much worse than that. And they deserved their home was built on the back of your Irish comrades. <sighs> In case you haven't noticed, <laughs> we're very much in support of Irish uh, independence. Yeah. I, I try to be a little bit balanced, but that's – it's not – I don't know. You know, I don't know. Maybe our British cousins feel differently, but I think most everybody agrees that yeah. Ireland should have been, you know, free lo- a lot sooner than it was. I mean – Right. I think No, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, I think, you know, the controversy more comes in with, you know, the next 70 years of Irish history. That's true. Yeah. Well, do you think they should have uh, quit their shenanigans? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to answer the question of the Irish troubles at this moment. Okay, yes. that's fine. Speaking of the question of the Irish troubles. <laughs> sure. It is now time to check in with our other recurring segment with our resident Hibernian historian. Hey, everyone. It's Tom with Tom Repeats History. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I'm going to talk a bit about the Irish independence struggle and in particular the uh, the high-born Irish women that were discussed in this scene. Um, I know I've talked about this a bit before, but I think it was more from the English perspective than the Irish. Um, so just to give a little... Fair and balanced like Fox News. <laughs> that's, that's the up yours downstairs promise. <laughs> that's right. Um, so just to kind of try to give a little background, the, the, the trouble with doing Irish history is it just stretches for like 900 years from the Norman invasion to, to 1999. And, you know, anywhere you pick up, you're coming in in the middle and breaking off in the middle. But I'll start with the Easter Rising, which is a very, you know, sort of landmark event. And it was a rebellion attempt in 1916. It lasted seven days and was crushed pretty quickly. What happened was... Uh, there were factions within the Irish nationalist movement that were really pushing for an immediate uprising and others that were kind of holding back. And there was a ship of German arms, because this is during World War One that was going to be landing to su- supply the Irish nationalists. Oh, wow. And the uh, ones that wanted a rising really pushed that and said, you know, once the British find out about this, you know, it's going to be a fight regardless. We We might as well take the advantage. But what happened was the ship did not make it. Uh, it did not make its rendezvous. It's not clear whose fault that was, and it wound up getting caught by the Royal Navy and, uh, and, and scuttling itself. Oh, God. So when that happened, <clears throat> so when that happened, the more conservative members of the movement sent out an order saying the uprising's canceled. 
Uh, you know, it's not going off. So it only wound up really happening in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Uh, they rose up there and in a couple other places around the country, but it was mainly just Dublin. Um, and they, they weren't really able to like close the ports or anything. They couldn't cut off any reinforcement. So it was, so it was like the Occupy movement. It it was like the Occupy movement, more violent. Um, but (laughs) good for them, but basically the same deal. Yeah. Um, that they were just outnumbered from the beginning. However, it became a real turning point in Irish history because of the British response. They, uh, executed all the leaders. They, they hung all the leaders and uh, the inquiry into the uprising basically came to the conclusion that it had been caused by their lax enforcement of the laws and that, that this meant it was time to crack down. Oh, my God. And the public who had been not exactly against the rebels, just confused. They weren't really expecting anything like that to happen. And they weren't, you know, all of a sudden there was violence in the middle of their city. So they weren't exactly thrilled. But after the British response, the public came back around to the side of, of the the rebels. Um, and at this point, uh, Sinn Féin really became into prominence. They'd existed for a while, but they became the face of the sort of radical nationalist okay. uh, movement. And then they were strengthened again by the conscription crisis in 1918. Uh, the German Spring Offensive had really worn down the manpower of the British Army, and so they decided to try and expand conscription to Ireland. It had been active in England since 1916, but they'd always known that trying to draft Irish soldiers to fight for the British Army would be controversial. <laughs> um, At best. Yeah. Uh, but they decided to try it anyway. Their theory was, A, that they were technically trying to recruit them to fight for the French, since the English and French were allied and the French were Catholic, they thought that might go over better. This is like the worst idea <laughs> I've ever heard. Yeah. They also tried to tie the conscription to implementing the Home Rule Act, which had actually been passed just before World War One, but had never gotten implemented uh, because of World War One and because of disagreements over whether and how Ireland would be partitioned. So they were like, well, we'll start drafting you, but you'll fight for the French and we'll tie it to this home rule. And that angered everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone on both sides of the question of partition wasn't ready for home rule to be implemented. Nobody wanted to get drafted, obviously. And it was just a disaster. Um, in the uh, parliamentary elections in 1918, Sinn Féin destroyed the Irish Parliamentary Party, the old more conservative party, winning essentially every seat in, in in Southern Ireland. And however, none of them went to Parliament, none of them went to Westminster. They all, as they had planned to do, form went to Dublin and formed their own parliament, the the Doyle Iran, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is the, still the name of the parliament in Ireland to mm-hmm. this day. Uh, they declared de- independence for Ireland in January of 19, leading to the Irish War of Independence, which is what's going on right now right. in Downton Abbey. And that that was kicked off when some Irish volunteers, which were later renamed the Irish Republican Army, uh, shot some policemen because they said they wanted the war to start and they figured the only way to start the war was by shooting some people. So they went out and found some policemen and shot them and by golly, it worked. It started <laughs> – <laughs> the war was started. So anybody out there looking to start a war? <laughs> yes. Pretty easy. Yeah, just just shoot a cop, apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, Occupy movement. Also, we're not advocating that yeah, anybody actually shoot a police officer. We're very, very definitely We want to make this very clear. Yes. 
despite our wish that Branson was more violent, <laughs> we do not wish you, gentle cousins, right. to be any more violent than you currently are. We And, you know, yeah. <laughs> we don't need a subpoena. Right. Uh, so... So that's sort of the, the, where these women fit in. So the, the women that were mentioned in this episode, uh, the first one was Maud Gunn, um, and she was really basically middle class. She was the daughter of a cavalry captain. So respectable, but not the nobility. Her father was posted to Dublin in 1882, and she wound up living there most of, most of her life. Uh, except she did go to France at one time because she had tuberculosis. Uh, while she was there, she met Lucien Milvoy, who was a right-wing politician in France, uh, a right-wing nationalist politician, and they agreed that together they would fight for Ireland and for the restoration of Alsace-Lorraine, respectively. Uh, fighting for Ireland, we approve of. Fighting for Alsace-Lorraine, we less approve of. Hear it up yours downstairs. <laughs> um, oh, they were just young and in love. <laughs> they were, actually. In 1889, uh, William Butler Yeats met her and fell in love with her. She, she sounds just fascinating. She she, all, she was. Uh, she briefly joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Oh, my gosh. Which Yeats was a member yes. of and Alistair Crowley most famously. Uh, and in 1900, she founded Daughters of Ireland. I'm not even trying to pronounce the, the Gaelic name. But it was just a place for Irish national, for women Irish nationalists like her that felt like they weren't getting included in, in the other nationalist mm-hmm. organizations. Uh, she also converted to Catholicism at this time. No, so was her dad from Britain though? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she wasn't technically an Irish citizen then? Right, but they were the same country at the time. Oh. You know? Okay, like, good point. Yeah, yeah. Gates proposed marriage to her repeatedly, and she always refused because he uh, wasn't radical enough for her, mm-hmm. and also I think wasn't Catholic. If well, I'm you know, frankly, that right. looking at what's happened with Sybil and Branson, I think good on her. <laughs> yeah, because if your spouse isn't down with your radicalism, you're better off just staying single. Yeah, yeah. And but yeah, many of his poems are inspired by her. Okay, um, and you know, dedicated to her and so forth. That would seem awkward to me. Yeah, but that's that's life in literary circles, I think. <laughs> um, her son, just an interesting other fact, her son by a later marriage, Sean McBride, uh, was actually a founding member of Amnesty International and won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1974. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, so that's just a little thing. Yeah. Uh, the next woman that they mentioned was Lady Gregory. Her name was Isabella Augusta. And she was mainly known as part of the Irish literary revival. Um, she was less political per se, but the two were really tied together. Um, she co-founded the Abbey Theatre, which is ah, very famous. Yes, it is. Yeah. My friend was once sexually harassed by someone who worked there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so her legacy lives on. Yes. Um, uh, she... Uh, a side note, she had an affair with Wilfred Scallon Blunt, who I've just mentioned before has having written The Secret History of the English Occupation of Egypt, which I just loved and recommend to all my cousins. She uh, married a knight, hence Lady Gregory. Uh, so again, not quite noble. They're, they're not as – these women didn't seem to be quite as high-born as I was led to believe by the episode. Agreed. But, I mean, she did grow up on like a 6,000-acre estate. Ooh. Yeah, um, which – Ironically, later burned down in the Irish Civil War. Hey! Yeah. Um, 
and like I say, mainly part of the Irish literary revival, part of the sort of revival of the Gaelic language as well. Uh, and it was strongly influenced her whole life by her nanny when she was a child, uh, Mary Sheridan, who was a Catholic, a native Gaelic speaker, and just sort of told her about, uh, you know, sort of stories and legends mm-hmm. and things like that. And that, that stayed with her all her life. Darby O'Gill and the little people and whatnot. I, I assume as much. <laughs> That movie's terrible, by the way. <laughs> yes. And and the third woman that was mentioned was uh, Countess Markevich. Her name was Constance Markevich, and she, childhood friend of Yates. So all three of these women were involved with They were knee-deep in Yates. They were. And she's actually the most interesting of the three. I would advise anybody to kind of look her up. But she moved to art school in London uh, because there was only one art school in Ireland that would take women and while she was there, she became a suffragist. Uh, so she got involved in that. Uh, later, she moved to Paris, and she married a Polish count, Kas- Kazimir Markevich. So that's how she became a countess. Um, he was actually from Ukraine, but that was part of Poland at the time. She then moved to Dublin and got involved with the Gaelic League. This was a supposedly non-political organization that was just about promotion of the Gaelic language and culture, but it became a place where all the nationalists were meeting as well and and sort of beginning to plot independence. Well, and they could speak Gaelic and confuse their enemies. (laughs) Indeed, they could. So it was around 1908 that she really got into the nationalist movement, uh, joined Sinn Féin, joined Daughters of Ireland. And she really actually, she said it, she enjoyed these meetings because she would go there and wouldn't be kowtowed to because of being a countess. Mm, mm-hmm. She enjoyed being treated as, as a peer, yeah. essentially. And not a peer, but an actual right, peer. Right. <laughs> yeah. A pal. <laughs> yes. And she, she founded, uh, Fianna Aaron, again, guessing on that. Yes, our uh, Gaelic speaking cousins, please feel free <laughs> to correct us on yeah. our phoneticisms. Yeah. But it was a uh, quote-unquote scouting organization that was basically to give young boys and girls paramilitary training and, like, you know, how to shoot people cool. and things like that. It was a hell of a thing for a countess to found. I mean, it's still, like, on – it's still a terrorist organization uh-huh. that's, like, banned around the world and things <laughs> like that. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. She participated in the Easter Rising, fought in, fought in it, uh, you know, was under siege and everything, and was sentenced to death along with everybody else. But because she was a woman, it was commuted to life. And it is reported that she said in court, I do wish your lot had the decency to shoot me. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yes. That is amazing. Yes, it is. In 1917, there was a general amnesty for everybody that was had participated in the Easter Rising and had not been hung. Um, and in the 1918 election in the Sinn Féin landslide, uh, she became the first ever female member of parliament. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I want to read an entire book about this lady. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. Um, and so, yeah, she, as I said, didn't go to Westminster and went and became part of the Doyle Ron. And in the Irish government, uh, still sort of provisional at this point, but she was served as the minister for labor. Uh, she was only the second female cabinet minister in Europe, you know, ever. Mm-hmm. There had been one other in the Soviet Union. And she was the last female cabinet minister in Ireland until 1979. Oh, dear. So, yeah. Well, she did set the bar kind of high. Yeah, yeah, she did. Uh, People were like, well, I'd like to vote for a woman, <laughs> but she hasn't been sentenced to death. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, so she was pretty badass and she, she was active in Irish politics, uh, until she, she died in 1927. Uh, the causes seem to be unclear. I mean, natural causes, but yeah. people disagree about what it was. But yeah, she was a pretty, pretty awesome woman. Yeah, pretty badass. Yeah. So yeah, so that's, that's my little, uh, Anglo-Irish rebel history lesson there. All right. Very cool. Thank you. You're welcome. Back to the show. <laughs> Downstairs, uh, Jimmy Kent and Alfred are getting ready to go up and serve. It's the first dinner that Jimmy Kent has, has participated in. Mm. And, uh, so Mrs. Hughes tells Jimmy Kent, just listen, to Mr. Carson. But Jimmy is very smug and says he knows what he's about. Oh, I'm sure he does. He seems to know a lot of things. <laughs> uh, but Daisy asks Alfred if he's all right. And basically she and Alfred are upset because Jimmy Kent has been given the pork, whereas Alfred has been given the veg. Uh, uh, first footman should be serving the pork. Second footman should be serving the veg. Yeah. I just want to say veg as many times <laughs> as humanly possible. Well, it's a good thing we've got this podcast. I know. Uh, but, you know, basically... Oh, I'm sorry. Mrs. Patmore is telling them this, not Mrs. Hughes. Oh, okay. I was like, why is Mrs. Hughes there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Mrs. Patmore is basically like... <laughs> And they, you know, drop the the issue. Right. And then Daisy starts whining about getting a kitchen maid because everybody else gets to hire somebody. But poor old Daisy still slaving away in the kitchen. Yeah. And Mrs. Patmore tells her. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. Yeah, it is. I will say the fact that there's nothing with like there's nothing much happening with Daisy. So they just sort of let nothing much ha- be happening with Daisy. Which I appreciate. Yeah. Likewise. Like, does Mrs. Hughes have to get an electric toaster? <laughs> does she? She's got a lot going on in this episode. Well, that's, she's helping facilitate that's she, an adoption. That's why she needs this time-saving device. <laughs> Up at dinner, it turns out that Edith did, in fact, write to the newspaper. Uh, the Dowager Countess, not not pleased by this. Which is so bizarre, because she was like, go do something. Right. It's like, you know, if you had stipulations, you may have wanted to outline them when yeah. you gave her this advice. Yeah, I, I, agree it's, uh, I agree it's hypocritical, but it's character plausible hypocrisy I guess so. to me. And uh, uh, apparently one of the Churchill family had been a, a war journalist, which seems much more controversial than writing a letter to the paper. <laughs> uh, but the Churchills are just crazy and they can do anything. Yeah. Which is, which is historically true. It is historically <laughs> true. Um, <clears throat> McGee agrees with Granny. Uh, and the Dowager Countess is like, someone write it down! <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, the letter has been sent, so it's too late now, but Lord Grantham says, it won't be printed. And poor Edith. Yeah. It's, uh, it's everybody, it's everybody shit on Edith's time again, mm-hmm. back at Downton Abbey. Well, it's been five minutes. <laughs> it has yeah, been. Let's shit all over Edith's streams and yet peacefully eat dinner with this guy <laughs> who doesn't even have the decency to be a proper rebel. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Very angry. Still angry. Yeah. The more I think about it, the <laughs> angrier I get. Yeah. That's, there's no avoiding it. Then Jimmy Kent shows up, uh, awing everyone upstairs as he did downstairs. Oh, so attractive. Yes. He introduces himself as Jimmy, but Carson quickly corrects him and says that his name is James. Mm-hmm. Jimmy looks sad. 
James this, is, is, is his slave name. <laughs> yeah. Well, this actually, this is exactly what happened to me in first grade. I thought I was Tommy my whole life, and then it turned out I was Thomas, mm-hmm. and I was confused. This explains why you're so weird now. <laughs> and also why you can't get it straight who Branson is. That's true. <laughs> Alfred and, and Jimmy Kent have gone back downstairs and Jimmy Ken is infuriated by the name change. <laughs> yeah. She says, my name is Zoolander. <laughs> Derek Zoolander. <laughs> uh, but he's really upset by it because he's been Jimmy his whole life. The mm-hmm. lady Dowager he worked for before called him Jimmy. Oh, and I bet, I she, bet did. she did. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I like that we had the exact same thought at the same time. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but Carson's like, hey, asshole. I'm the one who runs Downton Abbey. You're James. Yeah. And then uh, Jimmy complains to Alfred that uh, Carson thinks he's the big cheese and no mistake. (laughs) But Alfred's like, yeah, he is the big cheese. Like, did you not interview for this job with him? Did did you not get your servant's handbook? Right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so they kind of go off and O'Brien's standing with Thomas and she says, oh, that Jimmy's nice. Thomas (laughs) is like, why are you talking to me? He's like, he's just nice. And Thomas is like, get away. But see, here's what I think is going to happen. Is he nice? Oh, I don't know. I don't I don't really notice with guys if they're nice or not. <laughs> no, no, no. Here's what's going to happen. Yeah. Prediction. Uh, O'Brien is going to engineer some sort of like, you know, jiggery pokery uh... or something that at least can be interpreted as jiggery pokery. Yeah. And have, you know, Carson or somebody catch Thomas, you know. Doing something gay. (laughs) Right. Or not necessarily that, but just perhaps giving him the idea that a proposition would be welcomed by Jimmy Kent Mm -hmm. when, in fact, it would not be. Indeed. Yeah. All right. Okay. No, I think think that's where this is going. And I'm much more interested in this (laughs) than anything else that's happened so far. Not true. I'm interested in this Edith writing to the newspaper thing. Yeah, that's true. That's interesting. Yeah. Upstairs, Branson excuses himself from the room and he's, he's upset about being away from Ireland because Ireland is, is coming of age and he needs to be a part of that. Uh, so maybe you should have stayed in Ireland. Right? Sort of. Like you're wearing a goddamn tuxedo. (laughs) Yeah. How can you even say that with a straight face? Yeah. And, uh, he, he adds, uh, I guess things are keeping me out of jail or whatever. (laughs) Bye. Lord Grantham asks Matthew how he's coming along with the books, and Matthew says that there are going to need to be some changes to how they do things. Lord Grantham thinks that that's just sounds just like Murray, always banging away, asking for change and everything. And <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to hear it, and he walks out of the room. Mustache combs are expensive. <laughs> yes. Yes, Lord Grantham chooses the most mature way to handle that problem. Uh! <laughs> Back at murder prison, <laughs> a guard comes in to Bates's room and hands him this pile of letters. And he's like, here, these came for you, Bates. And Bates is like, when? Because Bates is the dumbest fuck <laughs> ever. Yes. So this guard tells him, oh, you're back in favor now because you ratted out your stupid cellmate. But watch out for Mr. Durant. Durant. Yeah, I think Durant. But he's whoever Craig was working with to smuggle that mysterious whatever it was. Yeah, sure. We all care. Yeah. Uh, then Bates starts reading his letters. I'm sure we'll never see him again. <laughs> his storyline is over. Downstairs at Down Abbey, Carson smells smoke. 
So he ga- grabs a fire bucket and runs to Mrs. Hughes' room. And the music from Benny Hill starts playing. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just the toaster, that wacky toaster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but she's got the hang of it now. Yeah. Jokes! <laughs> she had turned the dial too high, but now it's not too high. And there's toast. Uh, then the hall boy shows up. Uh, also with a fire bucket. Also with a fire bucket. Everybody's like, get out of here, hall boy. <laughs> He's like, I'm hungry. Can I have some toast? <laughs> uh, no. And Carson says to Mrs. Hughes, oh, you know, I would expect, you know, Mr. Branson to burn down the house, but not you. And she just <laughs> says, oh, you should never assume anything, Mr. Carson. That's true. That was funny. Which is fantastic. Yeah. Up in their bedroom, uh, Sybil's quite put out that Branson lied to her mm-hmm. uh, about attending those meetings. Yeah. Which apparently they have not discussed since this morning. Well... Well, it's a big house. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she's pregnant. I'm sure she's busy throwing up or something. She is saying, you know, they need peace and they need safety and Downton can provide both. Downton yeah. sounds like a drug in this scene. She's it does. like, we need Downton. We need it. <laughs> Tyrone is going to score in the morning, Harry. Uh, but she's like, no, we're having the baby here. Fuck off fuck bag and he's like man i want to go back to ireland because i'm a jerk yeah you'll only be there for like five minutes and then you'll see a puppy or something and you'll get all sad and come back <laughs> that puppy reminds me of isis <laughs> she is not so bad <laughs> uh, the next morning at breakfast uh lord grantham has a bit of a good god moment himself good god yes uh, because the Times has printed Edith's letter. Bring fruit, bring <laughs> cheese, anything to take this opinion away. <laughs> Indeed. It's not entirely clear to me whether they printed the letter or just described it. It seems like they just described it. Right. But so... maybe maybe there was an introduction followed by the letter. Well, but sometimes at least contemporarily, like, right. it would be like, you know, Earl's daughter you know, wants to vote, like, and then they'll print the letter underneath it. Yeah, so that may be what was going on. It's not clear to me. But in any case, it says Lady Edith Crawley, and she describes her concerns with the current state of women's suffrage. Yes. Lord Grantham, very upset, but Matthew and Branson are both impressed. I'm like, Branson, maybe don't help. Yeah, maybe. Just hang back for a second. Shouldn't you be having breakfast in bed because no one (laughs) wants to look at your stupid face? Yes. Carson harumphs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> off by the breakfast table and Lord Grantham asks his opinion and he would prefer not to say. I love Edith's face in this scene. Yeah. Because this is, you know, mere hours after everybody shat all over her dreams. <laughs> and Lord Grantham's like, they printed your letter. And like, she's so delighted and surprised. Yeah. And it just like, ah, Laura Carmichael plays it so beautifully. It's awesome. Yeah, it's very nice. Downstairs, Mrs. Hughes gives Anna a huge packet of letters, which are all clearly from Mr. Bass because they are the same color as his uniform. I assume they don't give them paper. They just have to, like, rip up their uniforms and write on them. And then, you know, their wives wash them and send them back, and they that's how that works. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Anna bursts into tears, uh, presumably sure. because she's happy, but it, I prefer in my own version of this episode, she's like, I thought he was dead. I was going to ask Jimmy out. <laughs> Get in line. <laughs> For real. <laughs> like behind us. <laughs> uh, down in the kitchen, uh, Daisy is putting some cans or something away up on a high shelf. <laughs> and... 
<laughs> she really needs that kitchen maid. She does. She's clearly. too short for this work. <laughs> but Alfred comes in and thanks, thanks Daisy for her support. And she comes right up to the edge of telling him how she feels and that she's got a crush on him and all that. Uh, but just as she's about to, Mrs. Patmore arrives with Ivy Stewart, the new kitchen maid. Oh my god! Yeah. And apparently, Alfred is smitten by Miss Stewart, which, I mean, she's not, she's not unattractive yeah, she's by not, any means. She's not ugly. But, there's no, she doesn't look any more or less attractive than any of the existing kitchen maids, as far as I can tell. I agree. But, uh, not to Alfred. She, she floats his boat. I and think he's the Landry of this show, if you're a fan <laughs> of Friday Night Lights. He, he, pretty, he looks a lot like he, him. He does, like, yeah. Eerily so. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So Daisy foiled again. But she's such a bitch. Yeah. Well, cause, cause Ivy says, I hope we shall get on. And Daisy says, we don't have to get on. We have to work together. And oh man, bitchy Daisy is really yeah. great. More bitchy Daisy, Baron Fellows. Like, yeah. let's make this happen. I mean, I understand. She's now the cowbell of Downton Abbey. <laughs> yeah. Bitchy Daisy. <laughs> So we're at back at the Dower House, mm-hmm. and Matthew is there, and he's telling the Dowager Countess about the fact that neither Lord Grantham or Mary will deal with the fact that their financial situation is a goddamn mess, which you'd think they would know <laughs> since this man has freaking bankrupted this place twice. I know. It's just like, there's just an entire <laughs> ledger labeled mistresses, etc. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you really think mistresses should be separate and everything ought to be itemized. Uh, anyway, so he tells her that it's being mismanaged, and she's like, oh, wow, it must be really serious if you have come to talk to me about this problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and he's worried about people's noses getting out of joint when he, you know, brings this to everyone's attention. And she's like, oh, you know, you can expect a great many noses to be out of joint. Uh, isn't, wouldn't it just be the two, basically? I do not understand why they would be upset. Like, he's well, literally trying to save you money. Right. He's trying and to make it so that his child doesn't have to marry some random heiress. I'm optimistically feeling that this is basically going to be some sort of tradition versus the new world type conflict where it's just a matter of they need to, you know, change the way they've done things for a hundred years uh-huh. to make money. And that's why people will be upset or something like that. I don't know. I mean... I'm interested in this conflict. Yeah. I'm just curious as to why anybody wouldn't want more money. (laughs) Right. But I I think this could be going somewhere. And I think, you know, I I like this last scene Uh with him and Maggie Smith. Like, he knows who to bring in because Maggie Smith, you know, she knows Lord Grantham is is an idiot. She's known it since he was like three. Yeah. (laughs) She was like, oh, dear. (laughs) Right. You better tie up the money, dear. (laughs) That's something else I wonder if the entailment will extend to Matthew and Mary's kids. Yeah, I'm, it wasn't. I mean, I would kind of think. I mean, because it's already down to like three generations, so yeah. it seems like the sort of thing that would just keep well, going. Well, the entailment was inst- instituted by Lord Grantham's father, right? And so it passed down to him, and then was entailed on yet another generation. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm bad at right. figuring out once removed and stuff. Right. But that said, I have no idea. Yeah. You know. 
Yeah, and also, you know, whenever, well, their hypothetical child or this alien baby, whatever happens, <laughs> yeah. like if if that baby is a girl, if it will be allowed to inherit right. within its lifetime. Yeah. Although, you know, again, its lifetime is going to involve some changes to the legal landscape. That's what I'm saying. So, and yeah. that would be, yeah. that would also be an interesting story. If the Maybe. legal landscape changes and the oldest child is a girl mm-hmm. and then they change so that, you know, oldest girls can inherit. Right. Yeah. So... So uh, we'll we'll uh, probably not see how that plays. Yeah, out. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> Fire up your fan fiction, ladies <laughs> or men. <laughs> or egalitarian. Yeah. Bates and Anna <laughs> read their letters and laugh and cry. And in case you were feeling bad about the fact that you didn't get to see a single scene involving the Irish War of Independence that's going on, don't worry. They had to cut that to make room for this scene of reading letters. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> Or Ethel giving a heartfelt speech about the Bryants taking her son. Sure, yeah. Or even more adventures with that toaster. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, we didn't get to see Jimmy Kent's bum? No. Sadly, no. I would I mean, be I, very interested in seeing that. Bomb. I'm sure you would. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I know. It's like a family show. Yeah. Sort of. Not until we start splicing it in with Oz. And <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy um, Kent stars in Murder Prison. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the last scene of the episode. So comparing the last scene last week to the last scene this week, it's just... It's horrible. It's horrible. Well, and it's like, really? We knew they were going to read the letters. Why not end it where it should naturally end? Yeah. Which is with the Dowager Countess being very ominous about how no one's going to be happy right. if they have to change. Yeah, yeah. This so, episode was a dumb episode. It was a dumb episode. And, I mean, we've just spent the last, you know, what, two hours criticizing it. And yet I will say that... I hate it less now than I did after watching it the first time That's somehow. Fair. Like I still hate many parts of it, but I like when we first saw the episode, I felt like my love of Downton Abbey had been crushed entirely. Oh my gosh. Like by this episode. Like I just hated it so much. And now that I've been able to take the time to realize <laughs> that it's just Branson that I hate so passionately. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest of it is still just down nabby with it's good and it's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just Branson just being such a weak, just so many weak choices with Branson. Well, and it's just, again, first series Branson never would have done this. Mm-hmm. First series Branson would have, like, enjoyed the destruction of property. Mm-hmm. He would have run off with his buddies. He potentially wouldn't have cared about Sybil's well-being. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's the Branson we want back. Yeah. Regardless. Yeah, we will see. It is now time for the Abbey Awards. Hooray. I know. So, first up, Best Evasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do always just want to give it to Baron Fellows for <laughs> right. invading all the interesting parts. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, Ethel of evaded raising her son right that's which true to me seems great and also evaded being helped by isabel yes so that was that was actually well nice. done yeah um lord grantham evaded discussing his finances mm-hmm. so you got that going the archbishop evaded being drawn into this ridiculous plot line with Branson. <laughs> that's true and it was right in front of him it really well he probably couldn't smell it right under his toffee nose <laughs> that's true or it was like uh, this story sounds annoying. I'm going to pretend I can't hear it. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, the hall boy evaded having any toast. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Jimmy Kent seems to have evaded being second footman. True. And and has evaded being directly propositioned so far. I don't know that that will That's last. That's not going to last. Yeah. I think in the next episode, <laughs> somebody is going to be like, hey, hey, girl, hey. <laughs> You're pretty. <laughs> um, Mrs. Bird evaded helping Ethel. She sure did. She... Like, and in a much more direct fashion than these evasions normally go. Yeah, uh, contemptuously. For that reason alone, I think she wins best evasion this week. Yeah, we'll give it to her. She yeah. doesn't have a lot going on. She really doesn't. <laughs> uh, next we have best overbite. I think that's an easy call. The Archbishop of York. Oh, so overbitey, that yes. guy. So many overbites. Yeah. Underneath a toffee nose, a classic overbite. <laughs> uh, in the new category of worst decision... Surprising no one. Yeah. It was Branson. It was Branson. It rivals the namesake of Anthony Strallen as mm-hmm. an incredibly bad decision. Yeah. So Branson, wear it with shame. Yeah. Well, and like, that's the thing, Baron Fellows. Just having people make terrible decisions is not compelling television. Agreed. Like, especially when they're terrible out of character decisions. Yeah, they need to, if they're driven into terrible decisions, like forced into it by legitimate you know, character and plot constraints, fine. But if they just just are stupid for no reason out of nowhere... Other than to prolong a storyline, it's, yeah. it's pointless. Which is what it always is. It it's is. always... Well, but it is a soap opera. That's what they do. No, I mean, that's true, but it can be annoying. <laughs> uh, next, we have the Gibson Girl slash Guy Award. And a bit of a surprise this time. We're giving it to Charlie. Yeah, little Charlie. He he really did look sharp. He looked very sharp. Yeah. Nice hat. The teddy bear was a nice accessory. It was. I know yeah. that it wasn't his choice, per se, to take that teddy bear. Oh, but he, he accepted it when it, he Absolute, had the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, so. Good looking kid. Yeah, yeah. I see a bright future for him. Yeah, at a famous school or university. Exactly. <laughs> Next up, we have the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion. <laughs> A.K.A. the backy. That's right. Uh, we're giving it to Bates. Yeah. Seriously. Get a new outfit. <laughs> what? You wear the same thing every freaking day? Yeah. Boring. Don't you know we have a fashion category on this show? Yeah. Get it together. Yeah. Accessorize. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Shank somebody. <laughs> you know what would be a great accessory for Bates, actually? <laughs> a, a shank. <laughs> in his ribs. That's right. Well, once again, when we start slicing it together with eyes, <laughs> it's going to be amazing. Yes, it is. <gasps> and finally, that brings us to everybody's favorite award, <gasps> the Maggie Smith Scale of Maggie Smith. Hurrah! Yes. Uh, and I think I think we're going to call it a three on yeah. this one. She's she's kind of resting on her laurels a little bit. A little bit. But they're well, such I mean, fabulous laurels. And they're better laurels than anyone else's. It's true. And uh, again, sort of... Uh, jarringly discordant with other parts of the story at times, but in a pleasant way. Yeah, I was glad. Yeah. I was like, oh, thank you for distracting me from how terrible this is. Yeah, and I'm definitely excited to see, uh, you know, you know, Violet and Matthew, investigative mm-hmm. duo. Ooh. Yeah. Swivel chairs abound. <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah, that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. We're, we're hoping next week will be an improvement. Uh, that perhaps Branson is eaten by wild dogs, uh, or Isis, even a tame dog would <laughs> be right. fine. Um, and you know, I don't know, Sybil can marry Jimmy Kent. Yeah. Maybe murder prison will burn down. Hey, 
anything could happen. <laughs> We're excited about it. We hope you are too. So until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs. Luncheon out. Mm-hmm.